Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to a Thursday, June 8th, 2023 edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Chase Thomas Podcast Network, Sports Renaissance Man, all that good stuff here each and every day on this very feed um jam jam pack show for you guys today um we have a lot to get to we do our mlb show because it is thursday so fan graphs john taylor and myself talking all things major league baseball why john thinks the mets are not a lock to make the playoffs at this point uh in time and why their season and summer could get worse sooner rather than later uh we talked about um just Luis Arias and just his crazy batting average in Miami. Um, Ellie De La Cruz making his debut this week for the Reds and just how big it is for Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, just a fun, fun summer story uh, in baseball. And then do a deep dive in the White Sox and the Orioles in the state of both teams and where they're at uh, here in the early part of June. So fun MLB show here on the Thursday edition of the program. Uh, we've also got, yeah, we're not done there. Houston County head football coach Jeremy Edwards to talk all things Hoko, uh, it's it's fun, and uh, it was it was an awesome conversation uh, with Jeremy getting to connect with another uh, Gwinnett County OG, Sean Calhoun, Jeremy Edwards, Eric Godfrey, just so many um, coaches doing great stuff all around uh, just the state of Georgia um, and what they're doing coaching wise, and Jeremy uh, doing a great job over there at Hoko, and we talked about. Uh, his development as a coach, um, what went right uh, last year for uh, Houston County, what uh, he's looking to build off of from last year, and uh, just his dudes, where he's deep going into this year, where he's not, uh, summer program, um, coach at Quavo at one point in time. Yeah, Quavo from Migo, so that was a fun little anecdote that uh, I learned in the program, but he was awesome and learned a lot uh, talking to Coach Edwards down there in Houston County. So if you're looking for some high octane uh, football here on Friday nights in the state of Georgia, uh, make sure that you stop by and check out uh, Houston County football game uh, one night this this fall because it's going to be high scoring. It's going to be a lot of fun, well coached and all that good stuff. So check them out there. We've also got, yeah, we're not done there. We're not done. Ian Boyd, uh, one of my favorite college football writers and Texas writers of Inside Texas. He also has got a great sub stack that y'all should go check out. 
as well talking college football as a whole ian and i we talked uh mainly texas here um if they are probably uh going to be uh maybe a favored team to make the college football playoff last year uh the longhorns in the big 12 well that's big for them uh quinn ewers uh going into year two as a starter what sarkeesian can still do better as an offensive mind here in austin um the horns chance to be in a top five offense and top five defense going to next year uh oklahoma tcu and alabama being on the schedule which ones uh might be uh, a little bit more uh, dangerous for the horns and then uh where arch manning is uh heading into this summer and his first four full year as a texas longhorn so a lot of fun talking texas and college football with ian he also did a little uh insight to what he sees from hypo and the balls from the outside so that was also fun for my local tennessee listeners here so jam jam packed show uh for you guys today here on this thursday uh apologies for a slight delay here getting it out in the afternoon instead of early morning so uh apologies on that front tomorrow jam packed show as well go big orange friday delaware uh head football coach also joining us uh on the program so watch out for that with uh ryan carty because he was awesome and that was a lot of fun too. So just a great week of content here on the Chase Thomas podcast. Don't forget folks, if you are a first time listener to this very show, go ahead and hit that pause button and subscribe on your preferred podcast player, whether it's Apple podcast, Spotify, wherever. Um, this is a daily national sports show outside here in Knoxville, Tennessee. So if you never want to miss uh, all kinds of great sports content, sports talk each and every day here on this feed, make sure you're subscribed and then if you're already subscribed and a uh, loyal listener here first, thank you. But also make sure if you have not already done so, you know what I'm about to say, leave this show, five-star rating, five-star review on your preferred podcast player. Helps other people find the show and it helps this very show continue to grow. You can also get in touch with me on email, chasemospodcast uh, at gmail.com and watch us. Oh yeah, we're on YouTube, full episode, shorts, clips, all that good stuff. Uh, so check out with, uh, our stuff on that front, youtube.com slash chase thomas podcast like and subscribe and all that all right uncle darren let's go chase thomas pod the chase thomas podcast um my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it all right hello and welcome back to another episode of the chase thomas podcast where i'm still the aforementioned chase thomas coming to you live from knoxville tennessee everything school hq where the Tennessee baseball team should be hosting a super regional against Southern Miss, but instead are traveling to Hattiesburg because of, let me check my notes here, politics. Um, so that's always fun. Uh, Wait, but no. li- literally because of politics? Backroom politics, not like actual okay. politics. Yeah. Okay. Just, yeah. Stuff, really fun NCAA committee stuff and oh, not okay. RPI stuff, not actual stat stuff, not actual anything that uh lends itself to reason as to why tennessee is having to uh and tennessee fans and reporters having to drive seven hours to hattiesburg mississippi rather than uh the two seed southern miss golden eagles coming to knoxville for the super regional it's a it's a fun time and they're also going to alternate who's home and who's away it's just all just very dumb john it's all yeah this this sounds incredibly stupid all the way around very stupid but that's the ncaa that that's the NCAA for you, sir. Um, John Taylor up there in New York City. Man, what a time to be in New York City, John Very Taylor. Very smoky New York City, where everything just kind of smells like mesquite barbecue, but not in a good way. Ooh, does it really actually have a smell outside? It's smo- It's a smoky smell. It it's like it's like standing outside of a barbecue joint, but without any of the subsequent good meat smells. It's just the smell of burning wood. 
what does it feel like? Is it feel like a doomsday apocalyptic situation or what is it actually I mean, there like is, walking there? There was a there? period around three in the afternoon today where the sky was just orange, mm-hmm. which I can't recall ever seeing before, at the very least not in this city and I don't think ever in my lifetime. So that was weird. That was definitely mm-hmm. a vibe of like, oh, cool. This is this is good. This is I think it's good that the sky changed a color that nobody has seen it before here in <laughs> probably forever. But yeah, it's it, it's not ideal. But you know, the hope is that all this smoke from those wildfires in Canada should hopefully dissipate by the end of the week. At least that's you know, it's that's kind of it's the, the frustrating thing about all this stuff is with any weather or climate stuff is there's really nothing that people on the ground can do. You know, mm. there's, there's nothing any any average New Yorker can do about this other than. You know, put on an N95 mask, buy an air purifier, and go about your day. Man, we'll stay safe out there, uh, John. I, and it's crazy. I didn't even realize it was just, I thought it was going to be like a day thing or tomorrow, but it could be till the end of the week. That's Yeah, it, it's looking like it probably will be until the end of the week. That's wild. That's it's wild. crazy. Um well john uh this leads us to you've had some some time you've got to do some doomsday reflecting here on take graphs uh, for this week because i imagine it's going to be a special edition here because of what's going on in new york city john what uh what is your major league baseball take graphs take of the week this week sir well let's let's keep it in new york i think the mets are in real serious trouble uh and to the point where it's like i I don't think they're, at least at current construction, they, I don't think they're a playoff team. And oh, wow. So some of that I think is... Just, Hold on, John. Know, actually, actually, can we pause this for one second? Sure. You did this with the Cardinals a month ago, and mm-hmm. now the Cardinals are going to win the NL Central. I and will that's... note that the Cardinals are bad again now, okay. and that their playoff odds on fan graphs have slipped below 20%, which is not quite a death sentence, but it's really hard to get from there over the hump. Well, um, the NL Central will do what they can to get them they're back also, top. They're also back in last place in the division. They which are. Is, which is, uh, I think, worth noting. I okay, don't, then I you're for, back. You're back on. I'm, I'm back. allowing we're, you to put the to put the Mets to bed because uh, I have a rooting interest in the Mets' demise, so I just want to make sure you okay. don't jinx them into well, first place. So I think, and, and one, I have a hard time just imagining, that, I mean, you know, I know jinxes are, are super powerful and genuinely control the universe, Correct. but this Braves team is just flat out better than this Mets team. I don't really think that there's much of any debate or discussion that can be had about that one. Um, I think maybe, maybe the Mets have a... Nope, nope, they're they're pretty much no. There's not I don't think there's a single part of the roster, be it rotation, bullpen, lineup, defense, anything, where the Mets have the edge over Atlanta going forward. So I, I mean I think that's also true of every team in the NL East, which is why again I will the Braves, like I think I've said before, the Braves with me are like Mike Trout with the MVP, just keep picking them to win that division until they don't win the division anymore. Uh especially when they don't show any signs that they are actually a bad team. You know, the worst that's happened to them this year is they might not have Kyle Wright for the rest of the season, and they th- I think they broke AJ Minter. That's pretty yeah. much the the worst that's of what's going on in Atlanta right now. Also, Michael Harris is very clearly either not over uh, the back injury he suffered, or is still dealing with some complications, or whatever it happens to be. But there's I think there's also some legitimate concern about Harris, uh, particularly given he was not a, a patient hitter last year, a guy who relied a lot on. Um, balls and play and such that you know and i think i and i haven't looked into it deeply but it's probably worth looking into what if there's an adjustment that's been made on him by opposing pitching but whatever i mean uh, the end of the day these are relatively minor problems for atlanta mm-hmm. you know the back of the rotation one reliever 
the nine hitter in their lineup who's still a great defensive outfielder, you know, these are manageable problems, even if they don't necessarily work out the way Atlanta wants them to. The Mets have way bigger problems. Half the lineup can't hit, half the team can't field, half the rotation doesn't work. Like a solid 75% of the bullpen is just bad. And Buck Showalter doesn't seem to have any real clue how to fix any of this. To say nothing about the fact of how weirdly obstinate he and the Mets generally have been with regards to solutions like, why don't we call up Francisco Alvarez and play him? Why don't we call up Brett Batty and play him? Why don't we call up Mark Vientos and play him? And some of that they have come around. Alvarez is now uh, playing semi-regularly, although now that Omar Narvaez is back, it's an open question, I think, as to who is going to be taking the lion's share of time there. Batty obviously has locked down the full-time third-base job. Uh, Vientos, Vientos is the one where I'm not really, I don't really understand what the Mets are doing there, why they've brought up a guy who Showalter has seemingly no interest in putting in the lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, I kind of understand, you know, he's ostensibly the short side of the platoon at DH with Dan Vogelbach, but at the same time, Vogelbach, while he, you know, remains a, a very patient hitter, who's great at drawing walks, is just too passive a hitter who is not letting any of his power play. And part of me wonders, well, why not just give Vientos more time and see what happens? But regardless, that is a small, again, a small issue, but the Mets have much bigger issues. And I think part of the, I think the biggest issue for me is their entire success, all success for them, both this season and the postseason, relies on two pitchers who are a combined, essentially like 85 years old, (laughs) to be not just good, but downright great for them down the stretch, because there is no other assistance coming here. Like, Kodai Senga, for as much as the as the ghost fork, is a very good, clearly pitch. It's not one he can routinely and, and regularly throw for strikes. His command and control don't seem to be major league caliber. Uh, Carlos Carrasco is very clearly now on the downside of his career. Um, he was okay he, last night until the bre- the the bottom fell out, but he was okay I, for a little but while. When, when did that happen? Was the fifth inning? I want to say that's right. Yeah, fifth yeah or so sixth, you're, yeah. you're talking about a guy who, at his best, is throwing 93 and can maybe get you through a lineup two times. You know, that's yeah. that's not that's not of real use either during the season or in the playoffs, particularly because by that point, I imagine Carrasco might not have anything left in the tank. Uh, Jose Quintana is not going to be back till after midseason at this point because of the uh, health issues he's suffered. There's no real reliable starting pitching depth, something the Mets have proven over and over again throughout the season with how poorly uh, Tyler McGill and David Peterson have pitched. Um, again, with the lineup, there's a lot of issues in terms of uh, just not getting any production right now out of the outfield corners or limited production, rather. Uh, they're basically running Francisco Lindor into the ground because the team doesn't have any semblance of an adequate backup shortstop right now. Um, something that I think that really bit them last night with Atlanta, Buck Walter noting that uh, Atlanta's go-ahead hit came on a ball that Luis, or that um, sorry Eduardo Escobar probably should have been able to make a play on at shortstop. So, look, they're... Uh, for what it's worth, Fangraphs, our odds have not given up on the Mets. They have a, we have them as a 53% chance to make the playoffs. Those are better odds than any non-division-leading team right now. So clearly, I'm going against the math here. But at the same time, when you look at the projected win-loss totals based on our uh, based on our numbers, the following teams are all somewhere between 82 and 85 wins. Mm. The Phillies, Marlins, Mets, Padres, Giants, and Diamondbacks. Hmm. That's six teams, plus you have to factor in the possibility that one of those NL Central teams that doesn't win the wild card, or the sorry, that doesn't win the division, could very well get hot toward the end of the season a la Cleveland 
last year and push its way into uh, postseason, into at least wildcard contention. If you want a, a mini take to go inside of that, I genuinely think the Reds might be one of those teams to watch out for coming down the stretch, given how much good young talent they have suddenly uh, accumulated and called up to the major league roster. But I don't want to get into another NL Central digression because it just makes me sad. Point of it being, even if you don't believe in, say, the Marlins going forward, and I really don't think you should. I know they've been off to a, a little hot streak, but again, that's a team that does not hit. You know, a lot of that is a very inflated record in, in one-run games that has no predictive value, that has it's based on absolutely nothing other than essentially the dumb luck of being able to win one-run games. It's not like the Marlins have a dominant bullpen. If anything, they have a pretty weak one. You know, you're still you're still lumping the Mets in with the Phillies, the Padres, the Diamondbacks, and I guess on the outside the Giants. So, I mean, look, it's not an impossible picture. Certainly, just the Mets have to be better than than one of those four, one of those three other teams in order to make the playoffs. And I don't think that's necessarily impossible. I would probably say they're more likely than not to to you know best uh, at the very least the Giants and probably the Phillies. But at the same time, it is not it is nowhere near a guarantee at this point. Again. They're projected to finish with 85 wins. So are the Padres. So are the so are the uh, Giants. So are the the Dimebacks are projected to finish at 86. The Phillies are projected to finish at 82. That's a really tight band there. Mm-hmm. And while again, there's not really any threat of outside competition aside from maybe one of those NL Central teams gets hot, or maybe the Giants get hot toward the end of the season. Although they've been a 500 team for basically the last year and a half. You know, again, it doesn't take much for this Mets team, I think, to go south. Particularly if, again, if they lose one or even worse, both of Scherzer and Verlander, they're in real, real, real trouble. Hmm. And to a degree that I don't really know what solutions exist out there if the Mets want to do something at the deadline to try to improve this. You know, I that farm system has some has some nice pieces in, it, and I think part of that you might see coming up again soon. And Ronnie Mauricio, the team is out trying out in the outfield corners because he's a his original position is shortstop, but obviously that is not a position he's going to be able to play in New York as long as Francisco Lindor is there. So maybe the idea is to get his bat up into the majors by putting him in an outfield corner. Regardless, um, I don't know that the Mets have all that many pieces to move if they do want to make a deal. I think similar to San, to San Diego, there's not a lot of reinforcements left in the cupboard in terms either of guys who can call up who can help out. I think the Mets are somewhat better off than San Diego in that regard or in terms of guys you can move, to say nothing of the fact that this payroll is already running $300 million plus. You know, I, I don't think Steve Cohen is suddenly going to get gun-shy, um, you know, if his, if his people tell him, hey, we're a legitimate playoff contender, we just need one more piece. But I do think there has to be some kind of limit somewhere as to what he can do, and I don't know that this Mets team is necessarily one player away from being a guaranteed postseason squad. Maybe they are. Maybe it is just a matter of finding some additional pitching or being able to trade for a good shutdown reliever type uh, to help improve the bullpen. But it's a the Mets are in a risky place, and definitely I think one of those teams where an injury to one of their stars. I know I've already mentioned Scherzer and Verlander, but Pete Alonso and and Lindor as well would really I think derail their season in spectacular ways. And I think if you want an idea of what that looks like, look how the Yankees played. Uh, when Aaron Judge was out with his hip injury. And I should note he's out again now on the IL with a toe injury that may keep him out longer than the hip injury. The Yankees went completely to pieces without Judge in their lineup because he is essentially the, the, the player who makes that lineup work. I think something similar would happen to the Mets if they were to lose Alonzo or Lindor. So it's... Maybe it's maybe it's much to say that they're in trouble, but I think they're, they're very much on the knife's edge. You know, as one of those teams that really cannot afford 
a lackluster uh, month of June, for example. I think the Padres are in a similar position, but I think the Padres' base of talent is overall a little better than what the Mets have. So I'm a little more confident in them. They have roughly, at this point, roughly the same postseason odds as as the Mets do. So, you know, maybe if you want to hedge it, I would say one of those, I think one of those two teams at this point will not make the playoffs. Yeah, and I think (laughs) the Mets are going to be active. Like, there's just no way they're not active. But like you said, they don't have all the many options. Like, I don't know. Does that mean they trade and bring Marcus Stroman back in? Does that mean they i mean you think you look around the league right now and what their realistic options are i i don't know there aren't a lot of obvious options no because i i think something we've seen uh is that the sellers in particular in this league don't really have a whole lot to sell at this point i mean if you're looking Mm -hmm. at teams where you can already say for sure okay they're going to be selling in some capacity or another you've got Chicago, the White Sox, although honestly, the White Sox are only two games worse than the Guardians in the AL Central standing. So Mm. they might be able to sit there and convince themselves that there is something, you know, if they're not as if they're basically on the same footing as Cleveland, then they're still in this race. But uh, maybe Detroit, although Detroit, I think, is in a similar position as Cleveland and Chicago, where they're nominally still in this. I, I should say just fully guaranteed, I think the A's and Royals will be sellers. I think the Nationals will probably look to move whatever short term pieces they can. But beyond that, I mean, maybe the Cubs get involved, and like you said, maybe there's a, a possible Stroman reunion in there. But you can't ever predict what the Rockies are going to do. I think I imagine the Giants will try to stay in the chase as long as they can. Pittsburgh, I don't think, has any real motivation to move right now, especially with how genuinely good this season has been for them. St. Louis is really interesting, but I don't know that there's really a match there, if only because St. Louis's big problem all season has been pitching, and so what are the Mets exactly going to get from them there? I mean, I don't think a Steven Matz reunion is, is to anyone's interest there. Um, Noah Syndergaard, who we'll talk about in a little bit, he might oh be on the move. Boy. He might be the odd man out in Los Angeles. There's a reunion option there, too. Uh, that's a lot, that's a lot of... Dep- someone between Syndergaard and the Jacob deGrom, Tommy John news, someone needs to make take that photo of uh, the Mets rotation. I think it was a photo that it was deGrom, Syndergaard, uh, Matt's and Matt Harvey all standing together. You know, the one where they have like the, their arms out yes. holding a pitch. Yeah. Someone's got to make that start fading out back to the future two style <laughs> or, or I guess back to the future one. Was it, was that a, was that a plot point in both of those movies was having the guy, people fade out of the photos. Like John, I, I have a terrible thing to reveal to you here. You've never seen back to the future. I've never seen back to the future. I mean, that's, a, I mean, look, I, I completely understand that movie to me feels like, that's one of those in our in our current age at least or it's like that movie that dividing line is 40 do you know what Hmm. i mean like if you're over 40 you've seen back to the future almost almost surely because you were either a kid when it came out in theaters or you saw it on vhs or you saw it on cable or whatever if you're under 40 the only real way you were going to see it was was on cable or rented yeah or your parents um, sat you down and watched it and was like, here's the, this is awesome. Like, exactly. Here's this, yeah. So I, I completely understand that. I've, I've only seen Back to the Future once in my life. You know, it, it's, it's just not a movie I think that really had a whole lot of staying power in terms of, you know, our, our elder millennials <laughs> slash middle millennials were, I don't think we're really going to pick. That's a, it's a Gen X movie, I think, mm-hmm. is, is what I'm going for there. Um, I'm just going to curious now when I'm just going to look up when Back to the Future came out. Uh, 1985. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's squarely... You know, if you're a Gen Xer, that was that came out when you were in high school, early college, maybe. So we, you know, I was negative two in 1985. So 
the first opportunity I really would have gotten to see that movie would have been roughly like 10 years after it came out. There's just no... Anyway, the hmm. point of all that being, uh, there's not a whole lot waiting, or there's not a whole lot out there, I think, for the Mets. You know, the Royals don't have pitching to move that I think anyone would be interested in. The Athletics certainly Hold on, have I have pitching a, to move. I have a Royals update for you, by the way. If it has to do with Brady Singer, I don't care. No. Our okay. friend from last week, Jordan Lyles, I saw uh, the one of the Royals blogs that I read and uh, keep track of. They had in all caps, Jordan Lyles didn't give up a first run, a run in the first inning. Like, that's like the thing is they're just... Well, well miracles never cease. Like, that was like a... Like, things are looking up. Like, he didn't give up a run in the first inning. It's, that's the state of the Royals. I just... Oh it's 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 we're all feeling great here the game's not um, over after the first inning when jordan lyles pitches that's where we're at but i think the the most realistic like more realistic for the mets would be something like the white Sox decide they're out of it and put lance lynn on the market yeah. you know or the angels try to see we gotta if get anyone, older <laughs> the angels try to see if anyone has any interest in tyler anderson who just has not worked out for them at all or you know the nationals try to gamble to see if anyone is stupid enough to pick up patrick corbin like but that's, I think that is the tier of starter that's more realistically going to be available. Yeah. The only, the only possible, I think, exception to that would be something like the Brewers completely falling apart and putting Corbin Burns on the market. Well, you know, but, there might be an inside job there. Ah, yes. The David Stearns connection. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think the Mets have the pieces necessary to make that trade happen. And I would be shocked if it weren't, say baltimore would be more in on that in the first place well hold on we know baltimore's not doing that john well i i could see baltimore doing it because well i don't know i, I mean I, yeah no. baltimore is its own concern like there's a whole other debate to be had about whether or not baltimore is actually a genuine contender given how bad their rotation is and how little interest the team seems to have in doing anything about that but regardless i i, would I just, just like grayson rodriguez to be good because he got sent down I, I, I want him to figure it out i think that's that's been one of the big issues for baltimore's i think there was a fair amount of banking on rodriguez will be at minimum a league average starter and instead yeah. he was nowhere near that so you know but again i i just i don't really see where that arm is where a, a good quality above average arm is coming from unless it's you know taking a chance on like i said someone like lynn or tyler anderson or you know, if the Rockies make Kyle Freeland available for something, I don't know why I try to assume that the Rockies will do anything that makes even any kind of sense one way or the other. No, no one knows what they're going to do. No. So, yeah, I con- consider me officially worried about the Mets in terms of their viability going forward, because, you know I, know, I know, again, our numbers like them, but this has not been a good team through two plus months of the season, you know, and we have not really seen consistent good baseball from the Mets that would make you feel like, oh, yeah, things are going to be fine here. And I think the same holds true for the Padres. You know, they just won today, but they've been very up and down the last week plus. They've been very up and down all season. Uh, and they're in a they're in a position where, you know, I, I think they're in a better position division-wise because I don't think the Dodgers are or, or Diamondbacks are as good as the Braves. But I think the other flip side of that is that they have two teams in front of them in the Dodgers and Diamondbacks who are both just flat-out good. Mm. You know, and so they I don't really know what division hopes they have left i mean our our odds put them at a 10 percent chance of winning the division uh with the dodgers at 63 percent and the diamondbacks at 17 percent and the giants also at 10 percent. so hmm. the, the odds really do not like san diego for anything other than a wild card um and at about the same percentage odds as the diamondbacks padres mets and marlins and again i think of those you know of those four teams I th- i'm pretty i feel pretty comfortable saying the other f- side of that take i guess the marlins are not going to be a playoff team 
I just I just don't see it. No, the Marlins are not. Although, what does uh, Arias' batting average need to get to before you're like, okay, they have to by law because this man's nearing 500 at the middle point of this season. <laughs> what, what is what has he been hitting? So he's now. Uh, I'm I'm just looking this up because I, I don't know the number off the top of my head. So Luis Arias is currently hitting. He's actually one for two today. Okay, he is currently hitting 402. <laughs> With a 451 OBP and a 495 slugging percentage, I'm also curious when the last time a guy put up a 400, 400, 400 season was. That's I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna play index that one after this, but okay. Um, I want to look at his game log just real quick because it seems like over the last like three weeks in particular, he's been just destroying. Like here, let's just do it for over the from since May 16, uh, using Fangraph's special little game logs. Mm-hmm. Since May 16, Luis Arias has hit 434, 476, 539. That's 33 hits in 84 plate appearances. Fun fact, zero home runs. He's a treasure. Protect him at all costs. It's really, you know, I I think, a little bit of a digression. I don't think Arias hits 400 for the full season just because I think it is borderline impossible to hit 400 over a full season. Like, there's a reason it hasn't been done since 1941, since Ted mm-hmm. Williams, who was arguably the greatest hitter who ever lived. But I do think it's incredibly realistic for Arias to end up somewhere in that 350 to 380 range and basically be the latter-day Tony Gwynn in that regard, hmm. you know? Which I, I, I understand, too, the idea. It's like, oh, that's sacrilege. No one can be Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn's skill set is very special, but it's not it, it's not impossible to replicate. Yeah. Tony Gwynn was a guy who was very good at making contact, who never struck out, who put the ball in play constantly because he also didn't draw much in the way of walks, and was just adept at hitting line drives and going the other way. That's Luis Arias. I mean, their skill yeah. sets are pretty comparable. You know, I think the sacrilege would be in saying Luis Arias will be the next Tony Gwynn because no, that requires another like dozen years of doing this. Mm. But I think to say Luis Arias has Tony Gwynn's skill set and can arrive at Tony Gwynn's outcomes, I think that's entirely realistic. I mean, I, I'd i be stunned at this point if Arias ended up hitting below 350 for the season. But I, I do think, I mean, consider that really all you need to get off the 400 path is a not even really a two-week slump, just two weeks of hitting like 300. That's enough to get Arias back down, like almost permanently back down below 400. So regardless, so I, you know, I... For all his heroics, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, I still don't think the Marlins are a playoff team unless they add, like, two more Luises or Reyes to the lineup. Well, there you go. Um, John Taylor. And yes. happier news, Ellie De La Cruz made his debut. Yeah. And he's going to be fun. He's good for baseball. Yo, he and O'Neill Cruz need yes. to team up for some kind of duo act, like some kind of barnstorming duo act during the offseason. Mm-hmm. Where they just go around like hitting balls a million miles and like throwing balls like a hundred miles. That would be like it's it's crazy thing O'Neill Cruz who just feels like such a physical like anomaly mm. that the Reds are like okay we have that but somehow like taller. Yes, like it, it makes absolutely no sense. What are they putting in the water down in in the Dominican Republic, man? Like those He's guys are six five, right? Let's see, yes, six five. Ellie, Ellie De La Cruz is six foot five, throws a hundred miles an hour, hits a hundred miles an hour. And runs with the same rough sprint speed as Trey Turner. That's that's insane. That is an insane combination of abilities. That makes absolutely no sense. It's it. I think it's kind of equivalent. Do you remember that moment? I, it, I and I'm kind of speaking vaguely here because I'm obviously not a football guy, but it felt like there was a moment in the last ten years in the NFL 
when the level of physical freaks just started like exponentially increasing when guys like DK Metcalf or hmm. um maybe not Aaron Donald cuz Aaron Donald is a, a just a, a thing unto himself but like mm-hmm. you know those those dudes who could just easily like pivot between like linebacker and defensive end and just you yeah. know, can play with one hand on the dirt or or, or you know or just standing up or those yeah. wide receivers who are built like strong safeties, but also somehow can run like four two forties. Like mm-hmm. I think baseball is in, and I, basketball, I think a, a Victor Wembanaya is obviously the, the biggest example. There someone who's just a pure genetic freak, mm. but, and maybe this is true of all professional sports at this point, but like, it just feels like the level of guys in baseball who can do things that just seem shouldn't really be possible, obviously led by Otani, but now including guys like Cruz and well, De La Cruz, Cruz and De La Cruz. Um, and other dudes like that. It just it just feels like we're at a we're at a real point where this is now starting to become like more commonplace that yeah. these dudes just come up here with these utterly bonkers tools. Um, but I, I I don't know. I mean, I, it is it is really cool though. I'm I'm very the Reds I, are also, awesome. The Reds are awesome. kind of fun now. That's well, that's what I'm saying. Like my my mini take inside all of that was that if there's an NL Central team that I think is a genuine dark horse playoff contender, leaving the Brewers aside since they're on top of the division. I would rather put my money on the Reds than any of the other four teams in the NL Central. Hmm. You know, I, I, I think and they know, have a two point nine percent playoff odd right now. Uh, they for do, and I think that's. I would give them probably no better than ten percent ultimately because I think mm-hmm. there is still a lot of hole, like particularly the rotation and, and the bullpen is just not very good. Yeah. But there's a lot of really good young talent there. There's Dylan Cruz. There's uh, Matt McClain. There's Spencer Steer. There's Jonathan India having his bounce back. There's TJ Friedel. There's Jake Fraley. There's Andrew Abbott, who they just called up. There's Alexis Diaz, who has been completely unhittable as their closer. I mean, it's actually mm. kind of funny to think there's going to be a real debate as to who the Reds' all-star is this season because hmm. uh, they have a lot of genuinely good options. I mean, I think I'd probably... It's probably India, up- right? It's either India or Diaz, I would think, and it's mostly just yeah. going to depend on roster construction, whether or not the NL wants... Uh, another infielder or a closer, but yeah. regardless, like there are some really, really good players on that team, really, really good young players too. And I think that that's just really worth noting for you know for guys like um, you know we we know that De La Cruz obviously is is what twenty one years old. You know mm-hmm. he's 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 a tiny baby, um, but I, I just want to go through the, some of the ages for these guys on the Reds. Just know like this is this is not a, a one like Steer is twenty five, India mm-hmm. is twenty six. Fraley is 28. Friedel is 27. Uh, Tyler Stevenson, who I haven't mentioned, in part because he's pretty much a DH at this point, uh, but still has some thump in his bat, 26. McLean is 23. De La Cruz, obviously, is 21. Um, you know, the pitching staff, uh, Hunter Green is... I can't believe I forgot to mention Hunter Green in all of this. Hunter Green yeah. is 23. Nick Lodolo, who unfortunately is hurt, is 25. Diaz is 26. Andrew Abbott is 24. Brandon Williamson, who's been pretty good for them as a, a himself a former top prospect, 25. You know, there are a lot... There is lots and lots of under-30 talent already on this roster. And then you start looking at their... Uh, sorry, at their prospect list, too... Just, you know, going by the prospect list we put together over at Fangrass back in early January, uh, top two on there were De La Cruz and Steer, but then you've also got Noelve Marte, the big piece who came over in the Luis Castillo trade, uh, who's currently in AA, 21 years old. Uh, Cam Collier, their, I think their first round pick in last year's draft, 18. Uh, Edwin Arroyo is number three on, their li- on our list, is 19. Chase Petty, who they got for Sonny Gray from Minnesota, uh, Number six on that list. He's 20. There's McLean at number seven is 23. Connor Phillips is in double A and is probably going to be a good relief arm is, is hasn't turned is I think just turned 22 there again. 
this is a system with a lot of talent. You go by our, our Fangraph's uh, future value designations, you've got four guys at a 50 future value plus, Del Cruz obviously at a 60, Petty at a 45 plus, McLean and Phillips, uh, Williamson all, and Michael Ciani, all 45 or better. 45 or better is, indicates pretty much a regular. You know, mm. 45 is a regular, 45 plus is an, is regular with all-star ceiling. 50 is pretty much regular all-star, and a 60 plus, a guy like De La Cruz, is a dude who's going to get MVP votes at some point in the future. At least that's our... And I again, for another guy I forgot to mention, Christian Encarnacion Strand, who's been tearing up AAA and is a realistic option for this team at first base if Joey Votto comes back and just doesn't look right. So, again, tons and tons of young talent on this roster, on the farm system. It's you know, I it doesn't in my mind make up for how Cincinnati has gotten to this point, which is to say by being as craven and just fan unfriendly as humanly possible. The Castellinis, I think, are still horrific owners who should be nowhere near this team. Because I think if you're if you're a Reds fan looking to the future, you know, you're feeling good about it, but you're also probably worrying, is this ownership group gonna build around this group when the time comes, or are they just gonna say, Well, these are the guys, and if they don't do it on their own, too bad. You know, I I worry about that, but I, I don't want to I don't want to rain on well on here a, on a parade here's how we moment, can so. put a bow on it is because the Pirates people forget had this amazing start and obviously injuries and other stuff uh, got in the way and they've fallen off. But I wonder because <clears throat> we're both pretty optimistic about where both rebuilds are headed um, yes. now to this point. I don't think it works out for both. It rarely happens like that when the small no. market low spending teams it puts they put it all together. Who would you bet on more likely to make this leap from bad to okay to good to maybe great over the next two to three years? Would you bet on it being the Reds who went to NL Central or two in the next two to three years? Or would you bet on the Pirates? Because I don't think it works well for both. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think the reality is it just depends which farm system you like more because neither of these teams, I think, is going to be involved in free agency over the next couple years to the degree that they're actually adding the pieces necessary. But at least and, we've seen it a little bit with Cincinnati. Yeah, and I think I think we're seeing it more with Cincinnati, and I think I like Cincinnati's long-term bets yeah, I think a little I, I think I better. I think part of that is just um, the, the Pirates seem to have had some genuine trouble getting pitchers to make that adjustment from the minors to the majors. We're seeing yeah. that. Um, we've seen it with Rancy Contreras, who got absolutely demolished today by the A's. Uh, we've seen it with Luis Ortiz, who they called up earlier in the season and has not pitched particularly well. Uh, Leover Peguero, or sorry, not Leover Peguero, uh, Quinn Priester, who granted has not uh, made it to the majors, but uh, probably the next guy that they're looking to try on that in that group. And there's also just, for me, I think most of what the Pirates, you know, most of that Pirates group is already there. The guys that they're really waiting on are, in particular, Andy Rodriguez and Henry Davis, one of whom will have to come off catcher. Uh, and eventually, but quite a ways away, Termar Johnson, who's probably... I'm get. I mean, our ETA, our ETA on him is 2028. 20, uh, he's not even 19 years old yet. He won't turn 19. Actually, he'll turn 19 in four days. Uh, and who is currently hitting 264, 21, 375 at A ball. Which, granted, for a 19 year old at A ball, that's pretty good. But mm-hmm. that's still a ways away from the majors. And I think, you know, even if you think 2028 is too pessimistic, I mean, realistically, 2025, I think is the fastest you might see Tamar Johnson. Whereas. Uh, with Cincinnati, I think you've already seen Steer and De La Cruz come up. Uh, you've already seen uh, McLean come up. You've already seen Williamson come up. You're going to see Encarnacion Strand, I think, before the end of the year. I think there's a pretty good shot in Elvin Marte and Chase Petty are on this team uh, by this time next year. 
Uh, Petty is currently an advanced A ball and pitching uh, very well, albeit only in 16 innings. Uh, Noelve Marte, as I said, is in double A currently, hitting 293, 366, 484 as a 21 year old. So, I mean, honestly, there's a chance Marte might get a September call up if he keeps hitting at that rate. Like, I think the future for the Reds, I, I think their prospects are a little better, and I think they're all closer to the majors in a way that they can make a bigger impact than what Pittsburgh has. Hmm. Um, I think the error bars are probably bigger on Cleve on, on Cincinnati rather, whereas I think, you know, Pittsburgh is a little more stable, but I think Pittsburgh's stability is like a team where at their best, they're probably going to be somewhere in that low eighties win projection. I think Cincinnati with the right additions and the right development can get higher than that. Because I think particularly when you have guys like De La Cruz and Marte um, who have such ludicrous physical tools, you know, the ceiling is just that much higher. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it's the Reds who break through um, yeah. among this group. And sorry, Pirates fans. We want it to be both, but I just don't I would think. love it to be both. And I think that's part, I think what especially gives me pause, again, is the ownership situations for both. Neither the yeah. Castellinis nor Bob Nutting have shown any inclination to spend um, as needed. You know, there's, there's no reason that the Reds can't be better than they are even right now. You know, there's... After an offseason where the most they did was go and get Will Myers, you know, who's probably going to get DFA'd before the All-Star break he at this rate. He has been awful. He's been very, very bad. And again, that was probably the biggest signing Cincinnati made all offseason, you know. Just yeah. looking back at their major transactions uh, from the winter, you know, they signed here, here are the guys, Luke Melee, Silvino Bracco, <laughs> Kurt Casale, Will Myers, Luke Weaver, Derek Law, Chad Pinder, who I don't think is on the roster anymore. That's it. They really didn't do anything this offseason. Um, not even really much in the way of trades. The only trade they made was uh, was getting Will Benson from Cleveland, you know. And Will Benson is a perfectly fine fifth outfielder, but I don't think anyone's idea... Oh, sorry, they also traded Blake Sable to the Giants, but I think Sable was a Rule 5 pick, so that doesn't really mm. matter. Point being, um, there's a lot of room for Cincinnati to do more. You know, they yeah. did nothing this offseason. It does but make I, me a little bit nervous where it's like the Jonathan India, are they going to keep him past the deadline stuff? That scares me a little bit. Where it's I like, think, he's I think a core they, guy, stop overthinking this, like, don't move Jonathan well, into the, the, the interesting, The interesting thing for the Reds there is going to be how do they figure out the infield mix between uh, De La Cruz, India, McLean, eventually Marte, um, possibly Steer, although they moved him out to an outfield corner with De La Cruz playing third last night and McLean at shortstop and India at second. I mean, I think ultimately it probably just shakes out to India at second, uh, Mar- or McLean at short, Marte at third, or not Marte, De La Cruz at third, and just kind of reconfigure as necessary if Marte comes up. Maybe McLean is a guy who could work as some kind of super utility bat who can play in the outfield corners as well. But, I mean, the outfield's crowded too with with Steer, Friedel, uh, and Fraley, and I guess if you want to include Nick Senzel, but I think it's probably okay to, to let go of Nick Senzel. Pouring out for my guy. Um Really, I mean, the only the only real space where I think the Reds, at this point in the lineup, where the Reds really are like, oh, this is not working out, is probably first base. And that a lot of that's just going to depend on how Votto comes back. And again, even if Votto comes back and it's just nowhere near Joey Votto, they've got Encarnacion Strand down in AAA, they can call him up and see what they can do. So, you know, it, it's going to be interesting how the Reds try to figure out that, that logjam that they have in terms of there are now too many good players coming up, but... That's a really good problem to have. It is never a bad thing to have too many good players because the other side of that is, well, hey, maybe now you can trade some of those guys to get some help, to get some help on the rotation. Yeah, 
For sure. I think that's that's another space where the Reds really do need that help right now. I mean, um, that like I said, that is probably the weakest part of the team right now, aside from the non-Alexis Diaz parts of the bullpen. I would say. I mean, part of the problem is there is 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 a guy like one that Graham Ashcraft has taken an enormous step back from last year, and that Nick Lodolo is currently hurt. But yeah, actually, I'm going to call the rotation a bigger problem for than the bullpen. You can figure out a bullpen unless your name is Dave Dombrowski. The rotation right now being Hunter Green followed by Luke Weaver, followed by Ben Lively. Even though Weaver and Lively, Lively in particular has pitched quite well, Weaver's been very bad, um, they need help there. And I think that's, maybe that is, and calling Abbott up is one part of it, but maybe part of that solution too is taking from that stockpile of prospects you have and seeing who out there has an arm um, that you can, that is young and cost controllable that wants, you know, that could use uh, hitting help. There you go. John Taylor, yes. Team Spotlight, number one, the Chicago White Sox, who might win the AL Central now? I mean, it's not impossible because the AL Central is pointless. It's a damn garbage dump. Sure, mm-hmm. why not? I mean... They're playing better baseball over the last few weeks. I don't think they could have played worse baseball than what they were, though. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, they're playing better in large part because, yeah, they, they, they literally could not do worse. I mean, yeah. their record in the month of April was 7-20. and 20. Like they, they they literally could not have done worse than that. I mean, yeah. Even going nineteen and fourteen since then, which uh, I should note, nineteen nineteen and fourteen is a five seventy five winning percentage, or a ninety three win pace over the full over a full season. That still has them eight games below five hundred. Mm. Like they they dug themselves such an enormous hole with that month of April that I I genuinely don't think they can get out of it. They need at least one of their young arms to be good. That would be good. <laughs> I mean, it seems like Michael Kopech is maybe kind of sort of starting to move in that direction. They really um, need him to. They really, yeah, It's there's been a lot of inconsistency there. I think the thing that has killed them in particular has been the inconsistency on the part of Dylan Cease. You know, there was yeah. a guy who finished. Also, what is it with AL Cy Young finishers? Dylan Cease finished second in that voting last year, and he's got an ERA plus of 94 and an ERA of almost five. Alec Manoa finished third in the Cy Young voting. He's been so bad this season, he got sent down to the Florida Rookie League. Yeah. to work his problems out, you know, but... Um, Tim Henderson has been quietly awful. Yeah, year. I think some of that has been just injuries, but yeah, yeah there, there's just so much here that hasn't gone right where I don't really know what the solution is. You know, for example, mm. like, Andrew Benintendi is a 90 OPS plus. You know, that's... I don't think he's necessarily 10% worse than league average going forward, but at the same time, his OPS plus is... Uh, it was... You know, 90, 99 in 2019, 106 in 2021, and 120 last year. So if you're effectively assuming, and for what it's worth, what, um, that was a shortened season in 2022, and most of that work was done with Kansas City, not with the Yankees who traded for him. What is there any real is there any real reason to believe that you're going to get anything better than maybe a 110 OPS plus out of him going forward? You know, Elvis Andrews and Romy Gonzalez at second base, that's not a functional solution, you know? Andrew Vaughn is barely a league average hitter. Yohan Moncada is not hasn't been a league average hitter. Eli Jimenez is barely a now, league right? average hitter. Moncada, yeah, Moncada. It's probably over, right? The Moncada ever figuring it out. We should probably move on. I think for, I think for him, a large part is just he's never been able to stay healthy enough to be able yeah. to get consistent playing time and really work on stuff. But I, I think you make a good point here is that these are not young guys anymore. I mean, Vaughn nah. is twenty five, Jimenez is twenty six, Luis Robert is twenty five. Those guys are still relatively young, and you know there might be another gear in there somewhere. But Anderson is thirty, Mancada is twenty-eight, Benintendi is twenty-eight. You know, Yasmani Grandal is thirty-four. You know, there's. Um, oh, can I do a bit? Yes. 
Um, I, I welcome any and all bits. It's one of my favorite bits. Okay. John. Yes. Um, did you know mm. that the Chicago White Sox have never got good production out of right field since McAuley or Adonis? Yeah, that's that's been a black hole for them forever. And Guess they tried what's to still f- a black hole for the Chicago White Sox? It's right field, where they're doing <laughs> stuff like playing Gavin Sheets, despite the fact he doesn't know how to play right field. They, I mean, this team has Clint Frazier on the roster right now. That's how bad things have gotten outfield-wise. I don't like, coach Clint Frazier for a year. There, there are just so many underperforming aspects of this team that I, I, I don't really. Again, I don't really know what the what the belief would be that things are going to get better. Like, is there really someone in the White Sox front office who thinks that Joe Kelly is going to be better than what he's been? He's got a 4.34 ERA and a 1.02 ERA plus. That's that's about what you should expect from Joe Kelly. You know, I, I'm really glad that Liam Hendricks is back, but the rest of that bullpen is really bad, with the exception of Kendall Graveman and whoever Gregory Santos is. I think that might be a George Santos uh, alias. I'm not. I'm not actually 100 percent sure. You know, like you're count. Like the White Sox are doing stuff like counting on Lance Lynn and Mike Clevenger to be better. Like I really don't know what the what the optimism is that that's going to happen. You know, they're pulling Clint Frazier out of essentially semi-retirement to try to p- patch a hole for them. They're giving a lot of playing time to Romy Gonzalez and Elvis. It just it. There is just simply there are simply too many holes on this roster and too many underperforming players where there should be no real belief that there is going to be you know real overperformance at this point for me to feel confident in them being anything other than I think at this point a, a I think a seventy six or seventy seven win team. I mean you you go by our playoff odds. We currently have the White Sox uh, projected to finish seventy five and eighty eight and eighty seven. And that mm. feels right to me. I, again, they're eight games under five they They've been playing better since the month of April, but they'd have to play at a ludicrously good pace to, to get out of the hole they dug. And again, that's that's all also assuming that everyone stays healthy, because for the most part, this White Sox team is pretty healthy right now. You know, like, uh, you know, they, they're obviously going to have... They're and healthy when, and bad. It's the best combination. And and that's the other thing is you can't really assume, like, Aloy Jimenez is probably going to get hurt again. Mankata is probably going to get hurt again. Tim Anderson has a bad injury history. Benintendi has a bad injury history. Luis Robert has a bad injury history. Like, they cannot get consistent, uh, they cannot get consistent production out of their lineup in part because everyone's hurt all the time. So, yeah, I, I, I just, I don't see where it comes from. And also, this is just overlooking the fact, too, that they have an awful farm system that is of absolutely no use in terms of either, uh, uh, in terms of either getting them some additional depth or, or or impact pieces, or in being able to trade for the kind of help that they would need. You know, to get another pitcher, to get a better outfielder. Like, what what out of the White Sox system is going to do that? You know, per our, uh, uh, sorry for our White Sox top prospect list, which granted came out in late December, so there are a couple updates still needed to be made. Um, Colson Montgomery and Brian Ramos are their two best hitting prospects. They're both, uh, they both started the year in double A. Montgomery is currently hitting 146 in double A with a weighted runs created plus of 19. So that's not really an option. Ramos is hitting 227 with a weighted runs created plus of 85. And this is his second try at double A. So that's also not particularly what you want to see. Uh, number three on this list is Oscar Colas, who they've already tried and given up on. Number four is Noah Schultz, who I believe was their uh, first draft pick last year, last summer. So not a guy that they're going to see anytime soon. Like, Lennon Sosa is number five on this list. And Lennon Sosa profiles as a utility guy going forward. You know, this is just a very shallow farm system that is not going to help this team this year, either in terms of, uh, you know, getting guys who are going to help the major league roster 
or in terms of uh, producing pieces that are going to help them trade for guys to help the major league roster. Go White Sox. Yeah, um, I mean, look, it's I, I'm not. I, I feel like I'm being bleak, but honestly, White Sox fans know all this. You know, they yes, they have long accepted that this team is. Is that a is that a we were born in the darkness? <laughs> something needs to change with the White yeah. Sox, and I think all White Sox fans are in agreement at this point that um, there needs to be. And I, I, I again, we we I feel like we've asked it every season at this point, but it, it does just feel like there cannot be more Rick Hahn at this point. There, there just can't. He has he has shown no ability to make this team perform better, despite having endless attempts to to do so. I agree. Um, as we wrap up here tonight, John the. Baltimore Orioles, thirty-seven and twenty-three, um, five and a half back from the Rays, who are they have, forty-four and nineteen. They have the third best winning percentage in the American League, and they're further out of first place than any other second-place team in baseball. That's the most Orioles thing possible. Is they're just awesome. They're building off last year, and just they have no chance of probably hosting uh, a playoff series. Um, no, I mean I think there's a genuine chance the Orioles don't make the postseason. Well, I think it's going to come down to them or the Blue Jays, right? Like, it's just who who can keep it going. Because I think the Yankees are going to be a postseason team. The I think are- so, too. But I, I I will amend that if this Aaron Judge injury ends up being something where he's out for months instead of weeks. Wasn't it he on 10-day? Did I say? Is he on the 10-day IL? Yeah, but it I doesn't seem like the Yankees are 100% clear on how long he's going to be out. So, mm. again, if this is just well, another minor... this is why minor- you have Giancarlo Stanton and his uh, availability <laughs> for these kind of situations, John. But... I mean, I think. Look, I think the Orioles have as good a shot as anyone in that a pile of American League contenders. But I mean, you know, we, we've we've talked about it already that the pitching staff is a real problem. Yeah, you know that that. But they have the pieces. Like, if the Orioles wanted to be buyers, as they should, as they at should. the deadline, there are like Marcus Stroman actually does make sense. He wouldn't cost all that much. Like, you no, have he'd, he'd be a great fit with this defense too. Right, like just go do that we're not asking you to just go all out here no this, uh, this team just needs one competent starter who we can trust yeah. because at this point like no you they're not going to get an ace i think the same problem that i was talking about with the mets faces the orioles and that i don't even know where that number one pitcher would be coming from you know like unless the angels say screw it and make otani available which i i sincerely doubt they're yeah. going to do who is the other team currently holding on to a number one caliber starter where you're looking at them and going, well, you guys got to give them up, right? I mean, if it's if it's the White Sox, maybe it's Lucas Giolito, and I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, I think if Cleveland falls completely out of it, maybe they take some calls on Shane Bieber to see what they can get in return. I think, um, you know, I think I, the Mariners obviously aren't going to do anything with Luis Castillo, no. regardless of whether or not they make the playoffs. Uh, the A's don't have that kind of starting pitcher to offer. Neither do the Royals. Neither do the Red Sox. Like. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you're banking on, well, I mean, again, what are you banking on? The, the, the Phillies Kyle deciding... Freeland feels like a Oriole. Oh, that would be so bleak. Just if that's that is the such an Oriole trade though. Do. Um, I do wonder if, for example, I mean, I think a lot, a lot, a lot would have to go wrong, um, with the Phillies for, for them to do this, but do they make Aaron Nola available? No, it's not a Nebraska move. I don't think it is either, you know, and I think, I mean, it, it's, I think it's worth wondering because he is an unrestricted free agent after this coming season. Uh, it doesn't seem like the team is really in any kind of extension talks with him. I haven't seen that cross the news in quite a bit. Um, again, I think it would take the, the, the Phillies falling apart to an unimaginable degree for them to do something like that. 
But again, I think, I think they figure something out with Noel long term. Now, if it was anyone from there, I think Wheeler would be more likely to get moved than Nola. Possibly, but I, I think either way, I just have a hard time seeing Philly doing that. I think, again, the, the one ace I see who could realistically become available if things go completely down the crapper for the team in question is Corbin Burns on the Brewers. Hmm. I think that is every contender's best shot at getting a number one starter is hoping and praying that the Brewers fall apart over the next two months. Also, because, you don't even have to hope for that. They'll trade st- important I mean, that's players. True. They traded Josh Hader last year, despite the that's fact what that I'm saying. I don't think they actually place. have to get bad. <laughs> they um, really don't. <laughs> I think I think it'd be more likely for them to deal Burns if Brandon Woodruff were currently healthy. Yeah, I think that's the problem because they can't guarantee that they're going to get Woodruff back at 100. percent So I think that again, unless things go completely haywire, I think they hold on to Burns and just try to ride it out one more time, but. Again, otherwise, I I don't know where that ace is coming from. You know, the the Giants don't have one. The Rocky or they have Logan Webb, but they they signed him to a long term yeah, deal. They're clearly anywhere. not moving him. The Rockies don't have one. The Reds um, are clearly not going to move Hunter Green or anyone else. The it, it really does look like it's you know if you're in the market for a pitcher, hey, congrats, you're bidding on Marcus Stroman. Yeah, you know, you're you're bidding on Tyler Anderson. You're bidding on Lance Lynn. You're bidding on. Um, Jeez, I don't even know. James Paxton, if, if the Red Sox uh, can't move any further uh, up in the postseason odds. Uh, I would just like to note, Ellie De La Cruz has hit his first Major League home run 115 miles an hour, 458 feet off of Noah Syndergaard. Oh, and off Syndergaard, no less. Yeah, which I know we wanted to talk about. Everything comes full circle here. Um, I don't think Syndergaard helps anyone this year. I think he's fundamentally finished. I, I think for a guy like that, I think the loss of the velocity. Oh my god! I just watched this in real time. It's I, I want to see it, but I've. I, I it sounds like it's absolutely obscene. It's an obscene homer. It's an obscene dinger, John. Um, but I think also him in the batter's box is low key hilarious. It's, it's really funny. He's like a mm-hmm. thousand feet tall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Syndergaard is one of those guys, a la Matt Harvey, where once the velocity disappeared, that's it. Yeah. Because it was all based on that velocity. Now, give me 20 seconds because I'm going to watch this Ellie De La Cruz home run. Oh, good God, <laughs> no. Holy, that got out of the stadium almost. Yeah, that was, I mean, it's a oh, 458. My. That was utterly crazy. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't think Syndergaard is of any help to anyone. I wouldn't be surprised if the... I know the Dodgers are in pitching hell to a certain degree, but I, I don't see how they can keep starting him. You know, he's yeah. he's out there getting absolutely torched by guys. Uh, another in-game update. Pete Alonzo, who I mentioned as one no, of the no, guys no, no, the no, Mets no, no, can no, no, not no, no, afford no, no, no. to it's lose. It's recording. It's recording. No, but, uh, uh, but this this isn't a scoring thing. It's okay. coming out of the game after getting hit by Charlie Morton's 97-mile-per-hour fastball on the left wrist. That is going to keep every Mets fan tonight who is already coughing coughing their lungs out. No no offense, obviously, to Mets fans. I'm right there with you. Um, just one more thing to worry about for the rest of the evening. Also, Pete's having uh, a rough last 24 hours as a whole. Like him talking in the dugout to Bryce Elder after, like, yeah. throw it to me again, and then you end up losing. Hate to see it. Yeah, I mean, look, as, as the immortal Jamie Vardy of Leicester City put it, chat shit get banged. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's how it comes around. And I know... The thing is, like, Pete Alonso, I think, is enough of a baseball guy to understand that and not get mad about it. You know, Mm. I think he gets that, you know, comes around, goes around stuff. But, uh, yeah, not something Mets fans want to see there. Holy. No. um, What's he on pace for? Like, 65 dingers this year? He's at 22, I think. 45 or 50, something along those lines. It's nonsense. Um, (sighs) 
they cannot afford to lose Pete Alonso. No, no, they cannot. So I was saying one of the four guys on that team who they can't afford to lose for a long stretch of time and under any circumstances. You know, that is just a death blow to that lineup if he's not healthy. Um, but yeah, Dalek, or Syndergaard, I don't think there's any juice left in that tank. Um, I he would have to. I think he would have to reinvent himself completely as a pitcher, like change the arsenal, change the the sequencing, change like change everything for him was built off the velocity, both in terms of the like how hard he threw his slider and fastball and changeup, and then the separation that that created for him. Without mm. that velocity, I that's there's just nothing there. No, there's not. Um, well, there you go, John Taylor. Yes. Fangraphs.com. Go check it out this week. What uh, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over on Fangraphs? Dan Sombrowski wrote about Elida Cruz, I think, th- he today. He did, and he, yeah. he's the one I'm, I'm, I'm taking that lead from on the Reds being a genuine dark horse NL Central contender. I think for anyone who's who, who heard me say that and had their head do a full like 360, <laughs> check out Dan's piece. He makes a very compelling argument. Definitely think you should look at that. Uh, for you college baseball sickos out there, yes. on Thursday, Michael Bauman is going to have a piece on the NCAA regionals. He is our resident college baseball sicko. Uh, if you are at all interested in the NCAA tournament and the backroom smoke-filled politicking mm-hmm. that apparently has been going on, I'm sure Michael will dive into that with gusto. And yes. continuing our top prospect list on Friday, we have the Houston Astros top prospect list coming from Eric Longenhagen and Tess Taruskin, our prospect experts. Uh, we are pretty close to done, I think, with our prospect lists for 2023. Uh, just looking now at the list, once we add Houston, we'll have about six teams left. Yeah, and the or five teams left. Almost the, pretty much the entirety of the AL West, uh, the Padres, and the Royals are, are pretty much all that's left. So check out the Astros list when it drops on Friday, or at least that's when it's scheduled to drop. Uh, otherwise, we're just checking in with uh, with the league as a whole. Uh, Jay Jaffe's going to have a Mike Trout check-in because it's always cool to look in on Mike Trout. Dan Zimborski is going to have a Zips stats update, uh, kind of his using his projection system to see which players have been uh, lucky or unlucky, so to speak, in terms of their stats versus their expected stats. Uh, yeah, a lot of cool stuff coming, as always. And worth noting, too, we are one month out roughly from the draft, uh, which MLB in its just infinite stupidity moved to All-Star Weekend to make everyone's life a living hell. But the draft is one of our big, uh, big content weeks. I don't know what the best way to put that is, but Eric and uh, the other Eric and Tess are going to be doing a lot of work around that. I assume Michael will also be involved as, again, our resident college baseball sicko. So if you're at all draft interested, draft curious, uh, keep an eye out throughout the rest of June and going into July. I'm sure Eric will have a big board update uh, on the first round of the draft with his current number one. I believe as of his last update, which granted I think was bef- right at the start of the season, that number one was Dylan Cruz. I'm just checking now out of just I would sheer. guess. Yeah, I, I, I have a hard He's time. He's still playing baseball. It's, he is still playing baseball and he is very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, a reminder that if you do want to see our MLB draft rankings, just go to the board, which has our whole prospect list. Click on the MLB draft tab up at the top. And in fact, you'll see that his current top five is Dylan Cruz, uh, TCU's Braden Taylor, which is the most like college baseball name imaginable. Florida's Wyatt Langford. He's good. Uh, F- Max Clark currently at Franklin High School in Indiana and a Vanderbilt commit at number four. And just for you, Chase, Chase Dollander, number five. Is he at five? Okay, I thought he would have slipped out maybe. Uh, no, nope, to... he, he is okay. at number five. Uh, for those of you who are following 
college baseball closely and are wondering about Paul Skeens. He's there at number eight. Yeah, uh, he's really good too. Super pitcher out of LSU. Who is he? Has he played two way at all at LSU, or is he strictly a pitcher at this point? Uh, strictly a pitcher. Where's okay. the Clemson uh, dual threat pitcher and hitter? Clemson, 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 Caden, Caden Bryce. Is let his name. me see. We do not have any Clemson players on our current draft big board. Interesting. So know. that hey, I mean, if you're come come by Fangraphs eventually, maybe we'll get that Clemson guy on there. If you're a Clemson fan who's listening, which I'd be kind of impressed because I, I'm I was pretty I was pretty much under the impression that no one in Clemson knew how to read. Wow. Um, Look, you know I'm they just, don't know how to do. I'm beat just, the Tennessee Volunteers, John Taylor. Whether it's the Orange Bowl, the regional, it doesn't matter. Look, you I'm just can't win. I'm just walking the path that Steve Spurrier laid out for me. Okay, yeah. like I one of the one of the one of the head ball coaches all time greatest jokes about the library at Clemson catching fire and him saying it's such a shame. I heard I heard they'd almost finished coloring in all the books too. <laughs> I miss Steve Spurrier so much. I don't. I don't. I would not want to talk to him about politics or culture for even like a second. Mm-hmm. But I would love to just hang out around him as he just pounds Coors Light and just hits tee shots at like a at a driving range or something. I yeah. think that would be a fun time. It'd be a fun time. John Taylor, always a pleasure. I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. All right, hello. Welcome back to Chase Thomas Podcast. Taping this on a Wednesday afternoon. Ian Boyd, one of my favorite college football writers. If you read him this week, you know that the Michigan Wolverines are winning the national championship this year on his Substack. It's already de- it's been decided. Ian Boyd, he knows. He's the he is the philosopher, he is the knower of college football, and that's exactly what he said in a recent uh Substack post. Uh is that correct, Ian? Well, I don't know about that. Um I think they're the favorite. Mm-hmm. They, they have the strongest looking team, um, you know, them or Georgia and LSU would be probably the other two that I'd have near the top. And Where do then, you have Ohio State? Uh, I don't know. Interesting. I don't know. I need to see this uh, defensive tackle that they have coming back that got hurt last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like they kind of need him to be, like early round draft pick good mm-hmm. that's why michigan's been taking it to him the last few years is ohio state has not been that good at defensive tackle i kind of want to see a little bit of mccord in a real game mm-hmm. um i'm a little concerned about offensive tackle for them um you know they just lost an nfl guy and they were like looking around in the portal it's never a good sign if it team at that level is like we're doing great we're just gonna look for a left tackle on the portal here don't mind us that's usually well, hold on tennessee just did that ian we're doing what we can and we had to get john campbell out of miami not everyone can just have 19 five-star tackles at their disposal like they do in austin alabama did that last year and i thought yeah. it was a red a red flag and uh it kind of was it kind of was they, that guy that got was ended up being solid but yeah wasn't it the vanderbilt kid they they brought in yeah yeah, I'm blanking on the name. But. Steen, I want to say. Is it Tyler Steen? Tell you. That might be it. Yeah. Um, well, we could talk all things uh, Michigan winning the national title and piss off a bunch of Ohio State fans here to start things off, Ian. Or we could talk about Texas and maybe make some Texas fans angry, happy. I don't know. Um, what would you say if you, be, like, now that you've been covering uh, the horns for so long, would you say if I pulled 
every Texas Longhorn fan that is familiar with your work, would you say the majority think that uh, you are pro-Texas or anti-Texas? Well, you know, I've been hearing a lot from the Oklahoma fans recently. Mm-hmm. And they think that I'm like the biggest Texas homer alive. Really? Uh-huh. Um, Texas fans, I don't, I don't know. I think I probably have a – I think I'm probably in the middle. I think okay. They probably see me as a fairly moderate takester on Texas football, <laughs> I guess. There you go. Uh, I like it. That's where you want to be, right? Like you want to be somewhere in the middle. You don't want to be seen as the homer or just the anti-Texas yeah, guy. I'm not, a, I'm not like a doomsayer on Texas. Yeah. I've probably overestimated them uh, probably every year for the last few years. Mm-hmm. But I haven't overestimated them by that much usually. It's just like, you know, like instead of being on the bottom of one tier, they're like maybe in the top of the next or I'll be off by like a win or two usually. There you go. Well, speaking of wins and where they're going to be in overestimating Texas, uh, Ian, is Texas ready to make the college football playoff in 2023-2024? They might. I okay. Think they, I think they might. Um, that Alabama game is going to be pretty big for that. If they win that game, they're you know in the catbird seat because the Big 12 is just not that strong this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Texas will probably find a way to lose a game in the Big 12. I don't think they can go undefeated. I don't really. I haven't seen the level of you know consistent playmaking from Quinn Ewers or from you know they they're missing like one final gear. If they had like a dominant pass rusher off the edge, then it would pretty much be game over. They don't have that. Um, so I, I don't really trust them to be like. I feel like 10 and two is probably the realm they'd be in if they lose to Alabama. And if they beat Alabama, then 10 to 10 and two or 11 and one, um, because it's their last year in the big 12. I generally look at this year as like, they have to win the big 12 championship and nothing else. I don't know if anything else really matters. If they go to the playoffs. That's great. Can they win in the playoffs? It comes back to what I just said about Quinn Ewers. He'd have to be very, very good very very ready for high level play based on where he was last year i don't think he's gonna be that in one more year so it's to me it's just big 12 championship or bust and anything else is gravy good copy i mean you go to tcu right like that's probably the one circled where it's like you split tcu oklahoma you drop one of them i i feel like it's pretty hard for even the most optimistic texas fan to be like we'll beat bama oklahoma and tcu all in the same year this year well, I, I think they could do that i i don't buy okay. i don't buy tcu this year i'm uh I, i'm shorting them okay um and oklahoma oklahoma might be like a eight win kind of team but i don't think they're gonna be that good mm-hmm. i think they could be like an inflated eight win team mm-hmm. maybe a nine win team if everything because their schedule is so soft mm-hmm. uh, they got like just such a great draw and with the new uh big 12 scheduling with the you know all these new teams but i don't think they're going to be that good you know they just lost like five players to the NFL draft on offense, which is what kept them afloat last year. Um, I don't think Dylan Gabriel is actually that good of a quarterback. I think he's a solid system guy who was a lot better in the G five 
Like how often do you see guys that are like backups at power five, they go to G five and they're like, you know, big fish in a small pond. Mm. He's like the, the goldfish that got dropped into like the shark tank. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, not that bad news sense. for Tanner Mordecai at Wisconsin this year, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the defense will probably be a lot better, but they could be a lot better and still be not be that good. They were, hmm. they were dreadful last year. So uh, there are other games in Texas's schedule that I think are – the thing with Texas is that – or with the Big 12 is that the floor is really high. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of games where you can just like show not show up and you're not in trouble. Um, they have uh, – they have to go to Iowa State. Um, we'll see how things shake out with Iowa State. They have some rumors circling about – you know, gambling and what that might cost their roster with those, uh, you know, gambling violation deals now. But I don't think that program stays down at Ames is tough. They play Kansas state. They go at Baylor. Who's probably not good, but you just never know. Mm. Um, all these teams have wide betas. They could be like just off the mark and then lose a bunch of games one year and then be like just over the mark, but win a bunch of games the next year. Because hmm. there's so much parity across the league, um, so yeah, I, I I easily could see them dropping a game or two in the Big Twelve. Probably would bet more on one than two. But if you name like, there's not specific teams that I think are really that scary to them. I think everyone on the schedule except for Alabama is uh, is going to find Texas a very difficult matchup. I like it. Um, will it benefit Quinn Ewers to not have the Bijan uh, safety net this year? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I would say that. <laughs> I think he will benefit from Texas. The last year they really emphasized playing big. Um, current volunteer tackle, Andre Karich. Uh, uh, no, he is going to be inside. He will not be on the outside. Andre right. Carriage is competing with the guards by, yeah. Well, he played ta- uh, tight end for Texas last year. Did you say tight end? Yeah. Yeah. They put it, put him in number 92 and they would play with six offensive linemen hmm. and then another tight end and then just run the dang ball. Yeah. yeah Bijan and, and to Roshan Johnson. And um, so the passing game was a little bit limited mm. by that personnel grouping. Um, and it was mostly just, take a deep shot every few plays to Xavier Worthy. Mm-hmm. And Quinn Ewers and Xavier Worthy just could not get on the same page all year long. It's amazing how many how many, how many, many deep shots they took that were there that they missed. I think he's actually going to benefit from Texas playing more of a spread personnel packaging this mm-hmm. year. They're going to get more receivers on the field. They're going to move Jordan Whittington inside of the slot more. Um he looked way more comfortable there when they played more spread against Washington in the Alamo Bowl, even though they lost. So I, I think changing the emphasis of the offense and giving him another offseason to see what he, where he was deficient, where he needs to grow, are all going to be huge boosts. But if they did all that and then they still had Bijan in the backfield, that'd be better. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I I also wonder too the bump of just Isaiah Nair being healthy, right? Like he was such a big important like ten, it was down to Tennessee and Texas uh, for the Wyoming kid, and then he had that horrible break and just doesn't play at all last year. But he was just I, I I wonder where he fits into this because you can make the case that Texas has the best group of 
wide receivers who are going to play anywhere in the country. Like the best full group of guys, if they're all healthy and they're all playing, you could say Texas, A&M, I guess probably Tennessee is somewhere in there. Um, Ohio State, obviously, but that's somewhere probably in my top four, top five of just ready-made guys who are going to put in a bunch of production all across the board. Like, I I just, I think that's going to be a huge thing for Quinn. Like when you're talking about spreading it out and stuff like that, it's just, you have dudes everywhere. And if they get healthy, I think that just goes a long way for his development in year two here. Yeah, they've been really slow playing him because they know they're, the sense in the program was actually that he was the best wide receiver on the team last year hmm. before he got hurt. And uh, he was good for Ewers because he's just a big target. Mm-hmm. Xavier Worthy, just finding the range on him, you know, running a 10-5 across the field was a little bit hard for Ewers. Um, I guess throwing to those uh, white boys at South Lake Carroll didn't quite prepare <laughs> him for that. Um, and um, although they had, they had some fast guys, but uh, they did get A.D. Mitchell, too, from Georgia. Yeah. And A.D. Mitchell was so good this spring that Nayor may be like more of a bit player. Hmm. They have like, if you count the tight end, Jatavian Sanders, they have like five guys at least that could be playing for a chance to be drafted. That's what I'm saying. I think you could make the case. Like, they have the best wide receiver room, I think, in college football this year. They have a Marvin Harrison Jr., but they, you know, they have – one to five is very, very deep. Mm. Um, the biggest offensive adjustment Sark needs to make going into this year is what? Well, it's just so much rides on Quinn. Mm. You, could, you could tell last year that he didn't even really have <clears throat> full command of the system. Um, they got into they got into trouble late in games where they they just struggled to turn the page and adjust when teams took away the, like the initial play script mm. they had, they nearly got taken down on the road at Kansas state because of, uh, when didn't know how to check out of a play, like they wanted to run the ball, like a, a toss to one side and Kansas state had it just, it was just drawing dead. They just totally overloaded the side they were running it to. And, you know, a senior quarterback might be like, whoa, 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 you know, don't mm. let's not do this. Um, so it, it's been kind of a debate with Texas for the last couple of years. People, people have argued like Sark can't adjust Sark. Why doesn't Sark ever adjust? But it's been hard to tell if it's really that, or if it's just that he can script plays really well, but he has not had the veterans and the talent the last two years to, to produce offense after the initial script is up. So this, this year's kind of the, the proof in the pudding there. I would have said maybe the the biggest adjustment for Sark would have been, hey, last year maybe don't entrust your program into a young redshirt freshman who hasn't played football in over a year. Hmm. Maybe get a veteran, forego some upside. You know, politically that would have been really tough to hmm. not take Quinn Ewers through the transfer portal, but they would have been a better team if they'd taken a. Uh, a lower ceiling, you know, veteran guy. They may have been a better team if they played Hudson card all year, to be honest. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, more likely top five offense and offensive efficiency next year or top five defense and defense defensive efficiency for the horns. 
By what metric? Uh, what, what do you think would be fair? Um, let me pull up CFP stats. Uh, let's do. I don't, ex- I don't remember exactly how FEI is calculated. Mm-hmm. I know that Bill Connolly's SP plus is heavy on explosiveness. Yeah, let's do SPS. Let's do SP plus. Let's do SP plus. Offensive S and P plus or uh, defensive. Maybe offensive. Hmm. Because what we just said about all those receivers, it feels likely that they're going to just hit a lot of home runs mm-hmm. uh, and that'll score well. Uh, I also just feel like, I don't know if you've seen this, but I was telling a buddy about Texas and I'm like one of the under talk about things. And I mean, you saw it on full display in the TCU game, but this is like the most menacing, physical, kind of terrifying Texas defense we've seen in a really long time like i think there there's a chance that they're going to be really really good and should be better right like texas defense i feel like it's turned the corner uh here with sark yeah they they've had maybe a a couple defenses in the last like 10 years they were really good Mm. really paired with really really bad offenses yeah um they've not had very many like complete no holes units except for like 2017, 2014. And then I think last year they were really, they didn't really have any holes, but this coming year they should be solid across the board with maybe more playmaking. Mm. Um, and how do you pronounce his name? I don't ever want to say his name. Kwiatkowski. What is it? How do you, spe- how do you say it? To Kwiatkowski. That's what I Kwiatkowski. Say that one more time. That's how I, re- that's how I taught myself to say it early on when they hired him was that called him too legit to Kwiatkowski. <laughs> <laughs> that works yeah um, now it's dumb but hey it's it's hard it's uh he's gonna be coach k uh for as long as i'm talking about him um but also when you look at uh bama ou and tcu i wanted to kind of like pick your name more here because in terms of what you think tcu is going to be in terms of the Tommy Reese era here with Alabama, and you still have to go, and that's just going to be more complicated than uh, getting Texas at, or getting Alabama home. And then what you think about Dylan Gabriel and company, but I'm just, Ted Roof is still calling the defense here for Oklahoma, which is still bonkers, that I don't understand what's going on there. And yeah. But is he really? I mean, I don't know. Why is Ru- Why is Ted Roof still on defensive staffs, like in these lead roles at this point in the, in the year 2023? And it feels like just there's never anything good that happens to your defense when Ted Roof is calling your defense or is the defensive coordinator in any capacity. I, I'm very suspicious over whether Roof has the call sheet or if it's, okay. just, if it's just Venables. That's more concerning if you're an OU fan, if it's been uh, Venables and he has the call sheet again and that defense stinks again. This whenever, year. You, whenever you see like a, a defensive coordinator turn head coach, mm-hmm. you've got a dude, a defensive coordinator that's just kind of like, wait, him, why? Mm-hmm. And then like if things go wrong, then he just like fires him. Mm-hmm. And then they're, it, That's like one of the cards that those kinds of coaches always play is they fire that guy and they're like, guess what, guys? Good news. I'm taking over. <laughs> But they've really been in, running it the whole time. Mm-hmm. I, this is this happened that exactly that happened at Texas with Charlie Strong. Yeah, they like they made this big thing of like, okay, Charlie's going to fix it. He fired Vance Bedford. Yeah, it was like no, nothing changed at all because he was already 
He was already in charge of everything. He, the man had a deposition uh, over his, one of his offensive coaches with a buyout from Oklahoma State where he couldn't remember how to pronounce his quarterback's name. He was very focused on defense all the way. Um, I, I kind of think Brent Venables is already – I mean, to me, it looks like a Brent Venables defense already other than sucking. <laughs> you know? So I, I don't think it's – I don't think it's uh, – I think he'll I think he'll play that card if he has to. And mm. maybe, maybe Texas lights him up and he'll be like, guess what? I'm getting rid of Ted Roof, I'm going to fix this. <laughs> and everybody will be like, okay. We got this. And then it'll be the same thing. I feel like you're not pretty optimistic about OU under Venables. Well, this is why this is why they think I'm a big Texas homer. Mm-hmm. I have been doomsaying Oklahoma for the last couple of years. Are you still saying it pretty strong? You don't think he works out long term? No, probably not. I mean, mm. I mean, he just got dealt a really bad hand. And like, like it's, they were extremely talented. They were extremely successful under Lincoln Riley. Mm. They didn't. What they left for him was a very poor fit for how he wanted to win. Mm. The landscape that he took over in was extremely difficult. Um, I just go to the SEC, um, and then there's a chance that there's a drop off on offense as these Riley guys phase out. Mm. And then uh, Jeff Jeff Levy's been pretty good, but. Um, if they if they take a if they take a big dip there and they can't figure it out on defense, then like you know, I I don't think they've bottomed out. I don't think last year was bottoming out. I think it could, it could get worse before it gets better. And I don't know if they're gonna have the patience for him to deal with it as it gets worse. I think they're one of those schools that right like they're probably one of the ten who I feel like it's okay that they don't have patience. Like I think Oklahoma not having patience is okay. I think they're one of the schools that shouldn't shouldn't have it. And well, if you're, yeah. I think that's partly why they've been good. They they move quickly. Yeah, but they've had you know anyone that can remember the '90s of Oklahoma football, which isn't me actually. I had to look it up. Mm-hmm. Their the their long run of sustained excellence has been because of stability. Mm-hmm. They're as capable as anyone else of hiring the wrong guy and fumbling around and struggling to get back on their feet. They're not like they've seemed immune to that, but really they haven't even experienced it. So it's, it's funny, like with Florida and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up here. And I just like, I don't think the Napier stuff's going to work uh, long-term in, in Florida. And it's just funny. Cause like Florida, when you just remove the urban and Spurrier year, it's like, it's mostly a disaster like it's mostly never really worked and you you just don't really understand why it doesn't work because they're always just going to be in the blue chip ratio you're in florida you have talent who want to play there img academy is a stone's throw from your university like you should be a powerhouse and competing for cfps year over year and it shouldn't be these uh it shouldn't be this hard uh to have sustained success there and i feel like oklahoma is one of those two where you're like uh, you kind of got a monopoly here you've established a strong brand you should be around the top 10 top 12 in recruiting year over year like actually you shouldn't struggle this much to keep winning at a pretty sustainable clip but for whatever reason if there is some instability it just doesn't it just doesn't work and instability is i think the case right now for both those programs why do you think napier won't make it well uh 
the Graham Mertz stuff was, uh, I don't think it's going to go well. Uh, I think they're. What happened with Graham Mertz? I mean, he's their quarterback, which is never good. And the Graham. I don't know. I, I thought he looked solid at times at Wisconsin. Hmm. I don't think that Wisconsin had like the same kind of guys to throw to. Mm-hmm. I assume he'll have at Florida. I don't really know Florida's receiver roster. They barely had anybody last year. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. And seeing it up close uh, yeah, with Tennessee Florida. Which is strange. I also thought that um, when I uh, when I wrote on Anthony Richardson before the draft, mm-hmm. I was shocked by how like skilled and developed he was in the past. Hmm. It was he was way more effective processing and throwing than I expected. And way much less effective as a runner than you would think from like his size and his gaudy 40 time and vertical leap. And I had to chalk some of that up to like, I think Billy Napier knows how to coach quarterbacks. And maybe, and maybe they are a little bit better, but I also think what's against him is Tennessee's up right now. South Carolina's up right now. Kentucky's up right now. You get Tennessee or you get uh, Texas and Oklahoma coming to the conference. Georgia's obviously a juggernaut that's going to beat you year every like i just don't see a path where i get nervous around teams where it's like i knew what mullen's identity was i knew what urban's identity was i know what sark's identity is trying to be i know what hypel more than anybody else maybe in the conference like we we know exactly what they're trying to do and how they are trying to win football games week over week i just don't see an identity all last year with napier and i just going into this year they had a, a coaching change so it'll be a different offense uh, different defense too um with their coordinators he has a bunch of staffers like that team photo of like a gazillion staffers um to go along with his roster like that's cool and all but i just i don't see it i don't see the wins i think there's a reason they're over under is five and a half coming into this year i don't see a path to them having a top 10 offense in the sport and i think it's just going to be really really hard for them to break through with where everybody else is right now in the conference and with what napier is trying to build there i just like hugh freeze on the flip side i think is going to jump right in and win eight eight games like this year at auburn i just it doesn't have to be as painful as billy napier is making it because like dan mullen was a great coach and i mean it wasn't like he left the cupboard bare bare it was just like top 12 they're still in the blue chip. it it wasn't as bad as like florida fans would like to make you believe it was i just I just don't think it's going to work. I, I think Hypel's got this thing humming at Tennessee for the foreseeable future. I think Kentucky is just not going anywhere as long as Stoops is there. They're going to be a problem for Florida year over year. And South Carolina is coming, uh, I think, across the board. So I just I don't see the path to Billy Napier with trying to be the CEO coach, trying to build out uh, a long-term Saban-esque juggernaut. I don't think he's going to get the time. I just I don't see it. Cause I think they're just not going to, the winds aren't going to be there and fans are going to get frustrated. Can I, uh, can I caution mm. and neg Tennessee just a little bit before we wrap up? Oh no, Ian, don't do this to me. I'm finally happy. Like we're winning a lot of games. It's fun. Don't, don't crush me. Ian, what are we doing? Is it that? How bad is it? I, I think that their style of offense is a very high floor cap ceiling offense. Hmm. I think it's like the, the wide spacing, you know, and hmm. the extreme run pass uh, conflict. It just makes it really easy to pile up wins because a lot of teams just they can't deal with it. If you hmm. have players, 
Um, it's easy to plug players into it. But when you play the teams that either know how to junk it up or that know how, or they can just match up and not be overwhelmed like Georgia last year, mm. then I think the offense just like, it's like a, um, uh, it's like a full court press basketball team. Mm. And if you can beat the press, like they're going to get a ton of game, They're going to win a ton of games. They're going to blow a bunch of people out. They can't handle the press. But when they play that team that has the guards to know what to do, then they just don't have like another counter punch. I think that that's going to be Tennessee with this offense. Maybe not. I think the counter punch is Nico, right? Like you have to have the quarterback who can just create on the fly, who can create outside of structure. And if you have the superstar quarterback who can create outside of structure when things break down and things aren't available, because Hendon Hooker for as much as I loved him and how good he was, he was the ultimate structure guy where like one read over quick, never made the bad a bad read never threw picks like joe milton didn't throw a pick he had like 10 tds zero picks last year in his time like they're just not going to put the ball where it doesn't need to go they're not going to put an arm's way they're not going to lose the turnover margin like you said high floor with this offense but i think the difference against the georgia team is where hendon has like took a lot of sacks and was like letting Jalen when Jalen carter was breaking through and he's on those double teams like hendon was just going down and didn't really scramble and make adjustments is nico a scrambler i, I had different impression uh, i mean in the spring game he's scrambling and he had his best play was out of structure on a bootleg outside and downfield to ethan davis uh four-star tight end um that was a pretty bucket ball so i think nico with his height will be a big thing like nico's obviously huge um good natural athlete that like if he is someone who can play outside of structure and can move around and <laughs> when the georgia bodies destroy the tennessee three-star offensive tackles can he do enough to withstand that and i mean the other thing too with tennessee fans that would caution folks it's like hey and like you just said they're gonna win a lot of football games playing this way a lot of teams just can't handle the the full court press that cannot handle the hash marks and you're just gonna continue to dunk on kentucky mizzou south carolina when they're at home not when you're at south carolina because that's just how things are apparently but then you like if Georgia's the last roadblock or Michigan or Ohio State, it's like it's pretty good. I mean, the, that's it's not a bad place to be based on where Tennessee's been for uh, a very long time. I will take that for a decade. I'll take like you might just need some luck to break through in a 12 team playoff and you get the right matchups. You can't handle what you're doing and you never know uh, with a Heisman type quarterback, the ultimate guy and uh, Nico Yamaliava. But like, I don't know, like. It's fine. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with like Georgia being the one who has to stop, who can slow down what Tennessee does. I'm like, great. They won back-to-back national titles. Like that's, that's fine. I'm okay with that. I think that's wisdom, but obviously that's not how we humans tend to do things. No. So because the guy down the street, you know, has got championships in his yeah. yard and then it's just, yeah, I'm not that. I'm not that fan. I'm like, no, this is good, folks. They're, they're stepping on a lot of rivals' necks uh, yeah. year over year. Like, enjoy this. Yes, enjoy it. Enjoy it. It is fun. Yeah, exactly. Ian Boyd, uh, what can the good folks check out from you over at Inside Texas and in the Substack this week? Uh, let's see, Inside Texas. I'm, you know, talking about Texas. Talking about mm-hmm. their linebacker Jalen Ford this week, and I talked about their uh, new commit from Alabama, KJ Lacey. Mm. I had not heard of him before this weekend and it was like, Hey, Texas just got this Alabama blue chick quarterback that Saban wanted. And he looks like Bryce young. Mm. Like, oh, okay. Well, that's 
that's good news for Texas. Um, and on the sub stack, I wrote about, I wrote about Oklahoma's version of the Tennessee offense, the Veer and shoot offense. Um, and uh, I'll be writing about general college football things there. Everybody should check it out. America's war game. That's yes. It's great. I love America's war game. Um, so go check that out. Subscribe today. If you are not already And Ian, I mean, I should 20 seconds. I have to ask you this. I, I, I can't do a Texas podcast without 30 seconds, especially with Peyton Manning right here behind me. Um, is Arch Manning going to be good at Texas? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I like it. All right. That's positive. The higher level he goes in the game, the better he'll be. Cause some of his main skills are like the, just like the higher level, like processing footwork. Um, you know, he's not going to dominate you with the scramble mm. structure. He's like the Manning. He's like his uncles, you know, to some degree. We'll see, we'll see how close he is to them. But those guys were the ultimate structure guys, you know. Mm. Um, so, like, the, the more that the game comes down to having skilled enough teammates to create a lot of structure, I think the better he'll be. And that's why he went to a place like Texas where he knew that he could play behind, you know, five-star linemen. Mm. Okay. Do you think he starts opening day next year? I don't know. I don't know. Mm. There's so many. So much can happen before then. Yeah. I mean, there's a chance yours comes back. I don't know that I believe that, but that's a whisper. Mm. Um, I don't know. Malik Murphy might be really good. Mm. Like, I think I'm pretty sure Alabama was uh, whispering in the wind, hoping that he might, you know, who needs a Malik Murphy when you have a Tyler Buckner ready yeah. to go? Yeah. Before, before they uh, circled back to Tyler, but Alabama has been like rumored to be like, uh, like the one that offered 4 million to uh, Drake may and the one that caused Miami to uh, uh, up the ante for uh, uh, Tyler Van Dyke, whatever their quarterback. Mm. Whenever you, whenever you hear these stories and you're like, wait, who's after that guy? Then the whisper would always be like, Oh, you know, Alabama. And then hmm. they, they settled on Tyler Buckner. This is like, this is like the craziest subplot of college football that nobody can really talk about because nobody's either they don't know if that's for sure what's happening or they can't report it. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's like the, the suspicion. Also, I just loved when they were like, "Oh, Saban, it's the Saban offense, the Alabama offense." Like he got his guy, like Tommy Reese, gonna be good. It's like he's guy his target before that was the washington offensive coordinator like a kalen DeBoer disciple how do you go from what washington is trying to do uh, to win football games to tommy reese like there's no plan in place there it wasn't like you just go no tommy reese is fine and we're gonna go back to the alabama way of 12 years ago with aj mccarron and company and just run the ball down your throats and win that way i'm like i don't think that was the case like you don't go from ryan grubb to uh to <laughs> tommy reese without like something going wrong there something went wrong this off season with the offensive uh, quarterback coordinator thing, everything. I wonder if there's whispers about, I haven't heard this at all. Yeah. Just, I wonder if there's something where people don't feel confident Saban will be there or something. Hmm. Yeah. Cause it's just weird that they keep missing on quarterbacks and that they missed on all those offensive coordinators. Yeah. I don't know. Ian Boyd, thank you so much. It's always a blast talking football, Texas, Tennessee, and you you said it, Tennessee, CFP this year. Uh, Ian Boyd, thank you, and uh, we'll have to check back in again soon. You bet.
All right, hello. Welcome back to Chase Podcast. Taping this on a Wednesday afternoon. First timer, Jeremy Edwards, the head coach, Houston County. Jeremy, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Chase. It's uh, I appreciate you having me on today. Thank you for being here. How many times do you get Houston? How many times do you get Houston County uh, from <laughs> people you talk to when you tell them where you coach at? You know, that that's a... Uh, that's funny you ask because uh, we, we've had a lot of traction through here um, this spring with a couple of our guys getting recruited. And, and mm. I'll be honest with you, a lot of the the, uh, the colleges that come in, they, they get it right. And oh. I always ask them, you know, how'd you know it was Houston instead of mm. Houston? I used to think when I saw it, I'm not from here. Mm. I thought it was Houston, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, – Definitely looks that way. There's a history behind it, but I uh, I don't know exactly where that came from, but it's definitely Houston County. There you go. What's your favorite uh, local food spot in Houston County? What have you What have you gone to really go to a lot? Ah, man, that's a loaded question. We don't go out a lot. I got three daughters, so mm. uh, it gets a little expensive going right. out. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we like, if we go out though, we're going to go big. We go to Longhorns. Okay. What's your Longhorn meal? Uh, the Renegade. I haven't had a really good. Yeah, okay. Sirloin. Yeah, it's great. It's great. There you go. I do the parm. My wife and I will do the Parmesan chicken there a lot. Like it has no go. business being that good. Parmesan chicken though, you really can't go wrong. Like yeah. big chicken, not a bit. We're not big red meat people. Like we do fish all the time, chicken right. all the time. I try right. to limit my red meat to once a week. I feel like, are, are you a red meat person or are you pretty healthy? Uh, not a lot. I'm like yeah. you. I, I don't eat it a lot, but whenever I go out, which we don't go out there very often, but when we do, I'm going to get a steak. For sure. Okay. What's your, do you, are you a big coffee guy in the morning or do you, do you okay, Love what do you put coffee. in your coffee? Is it black or do you put stuff in it? No, I put uh, stevia and almond milk. Oh, I'm yeah. also a big almond milk guy. I haven't done dairy in years. That's like, I, I joke when you, you know, you're old when you're like, dairy just doesn't resonate with me anymore. Like dairy's out it, and exactly it's just almond right. milk from here on out. You're exactly right. Yeah. I'm 43 and uh, yeah, it does something to my body when I have dairy for right? sure. So uh, the 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 almond milk stevia combination has been been the deal. There's a place up in Canton, Georgia, that does uh-huh. organic coffee. Okay. Um, uh, Alma Coffee is the name of it. You should check them out. A L A L M A um, out of Canton, and okay. their coffee is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And actually, Coach uh, Coach Eck up at Tennessee. Yep. Which I love. He came through. Um, he came through the first recruiting period and he's mm. big on, you, you know him. I'm yeah. sure. Quiet guy, very reserved, very Great keeps screen. to himself. That kind yeah. of guy. And, uh, <laughs> he, he said that the key is, is don't have like regular coffee because it's sprayed with all kinds of pesticides and whatever. Uh-huh. So I got on the organic kick. So there we go. There you go. Well, what, what's the most, what's your unhealthy, like guilty pleasure? What would your wife and kids say is the one thing that you'll, you'll allow yourself. Uh, I mean, I, I try not to keep chocolate in the house. Okay. So I, yeah. I mean, I, I try not to eat a lot of chocolate, but it, it's hard to say no if it's in the house. So my kids love it. <laughs> it's hard having three kids, you know, um, that, that love Cokes and things like that, which I'm not a Coke drinker. Yeah. They, they love sugar. They're addicted for sure. There you go. Uh, any family vacations this summer you're going on? Probably not. Um, okay. we, uh, we just got a, a dog. And what kind? Uh, a mini golden doodle. Okay. Yeah. So, boy, girl. Uh, it's a boy. We What's his name? Bear. Bear. Uh, oh, yep, as one does. Yeah. Bear. So mm-hmm. uh, 
he uh he's been a joy but i don't think we're ready to board him or anything so mm -hmm. we're just we gotta we're lucky we gotta we put a pull in during covid it's probably the best thing we've ever done you know <laughs> it's not cheap but it's uh it was money you know well spent for my kids and so mm -hmm. we're just and watch the dog are you mostly responsible because i got a dog right here is it one of those where the kids are actually helping out was it talked about okay, like y'all gotta help plan, this Chase. that was the plan but right. that is not happening <laughs> so it's been uh me and the wife we get up at about 5 5 30 and go for a mm -hmm. walk um it's a time where we can kind of talk kid you know kids are still kind of sleeping and walk the dog and yeah it's uh it definitely um, is not their responsibility, like they said. They begged us forever to get one, and we finally got one. And uh, yeah, it, it's 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 like having another kid. So I got four kids. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, dogs are awesome. It's a, it's, it's a, awesome. It's awesome. It, it, no. It's uh, it's smart, man. I mean, it hadn't taken a whole lot to have to you know train it up and stuff. Yeah. So it's it's been good. There you go. Um, let's talk some football, coach. Um, when you look at just summer camps and how summer practices have changed since you first started coaching. How much has it changed for you? How much has your program evolved over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years of just with where the sport's going with all these different elite camps, all these different seven on sevens, how have you had to evolve in how you tackle summer workouts as a coach? Uh, it's changed a lot since, you know, when I played, obviously, but, mm -hmm. um, over my career, this would be my 17th year. Um, my second year, you know, here as a head coach, mm -hmm. managing it as a coordinator and as a head coach, you know, you just uh, what we do here, which I know a lot of people do the same is we give the kids, uh, you know, we go Monday through Thursday, June mm -hmm. uh, and July. So we kind of free up that time uh, from really lunchtime on Thursday until you report on Monday to do what you need to do from a from an OV standpoint, from a um, you know, just going to camps or, you know, vacation with your family, whatever, in addition to the dead week. So we try to give them enough time because they are kids and they mm. enjoy the kids. And uh, but it's definitely different. And obviously the landscape's really changing now with NIL and all that stuff. And there's so many different things going on that it's really, to be honest with you, it's hard to keep track of it all. Mm. So. so how do you do it? Like, do you have a really, like, how is there now staff? Is there positions now where it's like, hey, I need you to keep track? Like, we need somebody involved here who keeps track of who's here, who's not, who's going to be in an OV, who's going to be at this camp. Oh, well, I mean, I keep track of it, but I got, I, I've, I've got a phenomenal staff. Mm. Uh, we're, we're blessed here. We've got about, uh, about 19 coaches on staff, nine, okay. you know, nine, JV and varsity, uh, in ninth grade. And, and, um, and we, you know, I, I delegate um, mm. things out. I don't try to do it all. And so I've got guys that I really, really trust that do a great job and uh, love our kids. And, and we just try to do the best to give these guys a, a, an opportunity to have a, a program that they, they can't live without. And uh, every day we try to give them the very best. Um, you know, it, it requires some work. We got to do some fund fundraising and things like that. But we want to we want to make our mark as a, one of the top programs if this in the state if not in the country and so by you know by doing that it takes some hard work but it it's all it's all attributed to my staff really they're they're really what makes it go and i've been blessed to have guys that have been with me at other schools and uh, came with me here uh to house and county and it's just uh 
Uh, I'm living a dream right now, to be honest with you, Chase. When you look at delegation, was that a natural uh, thing for you as a leader? Or did you have to kind of learn as you go or you just being a coordinator and seeing uh, with different mentors uh, coming up through the ranks that you saw how it worked and you kind of were ready for it? Because I know sometimes it's hard to just be the CEO and hands off and be able to delegate. Or was that more of a natural thing for you? Um, I, I've been around some really good coaches uh, mm. throughout years one of them that that really made a huge impact on me was uh when i was at north Gwinnett. um i worked for bob spire who um has been a very successful head coach and just seeing how he set up a program seeing how he he delegated things out and you just have to be organized you know i i i I do take pride in being very detail oriented and trying to be organized almost to an ocd (laughs) type (laughs) you know to a fault but um Mm. Yeah, I mean, I just try to make sure that that we check every box and, and that everything that we do, uh, we're we're making sure we talk through it and we have meetings when we need to have meetings. But I'm not I'm not trying to overwork my guys, you know. But you know, we just we just try to spread the wealth and we just try to make sure that that we're covering all our bases and and, and just giving these kids a great experience. What's the most important month in your program? Do you think your off season program? Uh. Shoot, that's a loaded question. Probably, probably in in, in June, just getting them back. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, May to me gets a little crazy around here. So I, I'm gonna hmm. actually I'm gonna backtrack. I'm gonna say probably May. We have a lot that goes on in May. We got to hmm. juggle a lot of things. Um, we got a lot of things going on from a kids camp to a reverse raffle fundraiser that's big um, to spring practice to kids that are you know, maybe involved in track and baseball. We got a phenomenal baseball program here at, at Hoco. And, and, um, you know, so, and we, we encourage guys to play multiple sports. Um, Mm. and we, we kind of schedule our spring practice around, uh, our baseball program to be Mm. quite honest. Um, we finished up on a Tuesday night and they played for the, for the state championship Wednesday night and, and clinched it Wednesday night. So we were able to kind of go there and support them it's a family atmosphere here at Hoco and, and, and really it's, it's a, it's a great place to be. Um, and, uh, it's, it, it's really attributed to our administration and everything they've set in place for us. I like it. Um, you get a do over game from last year. What game do you pick? And it's not like just the game, like in terms of when you go back and watch the film, like you wish you called this game differently or you wish you had seen this on tape and you were like, man, if we, you give me that game one more time. I think it goes extremely different. Uh, what game for you would that be? You only get one. Which one do you choose? Yeah, I, I, I know exactly which one. Um, Thomas County Central is mm-hmm. the one that I feel like that we, you know, we had the lead, we had the momentum, and within a couple plays, it just swung the other way. And uh, we had to learn a lot about ourselves um, as a team. Uh, from that, you know, going and playing down there in South Georgia is not an easy task. And, um, we had the momentum and we lost it and it's mm-hmm. a game of momentum. And, um, you know, within, you know, a few plays that obviously every game you wish there's a couple calls you wish you made different, um, you know, as a play caller at that there's plays that haunt me to this day, but, um, you know, it's definitely the Thomas County central game. Coach Rogers got a good program there. Like they're, they're yeah, moving. In. He's 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 great. He's been a friend of mine for a, for a long time. We work for the same guy, mm-hmm. um, 
Steve Dvorsny when um, he worked for him at Griffin, I worked for him at Cairo. And mm. uh, so we kind of got to know each other through that. Um, really, really good guy and, and does a good job. Very passionate about football and, and, and always trying to get better and going to clinics and, yeah, I got a whole lot of respect for him. I wish I got to talk ball with him more, but now that we're mm. in the same region, uh, we just uh, we'll text every now and again, but we don't we aren't sharing any secrets. Yeah, that's got to complicate the friendships, right? It's kind of weird when you're actually it's competing. Weird. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it, like I said, he's 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 very good at what he does and um, runs a good program, and and uh, I wish he you know he wins every game, just not when he plays the Hoko. <laughs> There you go. Is Coach Byer your, uh, your, would you say your most, uh, I guess your mentor uh, through the ranks? Is he your biggest mentor? Uh, yeah, I would say so, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, he gave me an opportunity um, early in my career to come in, and I was actually his head ninth grade coach when I mm. worked for him. And he gave me the opportunity to also work with the quarterbacks with the, you know, with the varsity. So we mm. kind of practiced everybody together. It wasn't a, a separate ninth grade from the varsity deal. So it was very hmm. unique that way, but he gave me a lot of, um, you know, leeway on how to run my ninth grade program, but obviously under his direction. And, um, and I still called the offense and things like that. His son played for me. His son was in the program. He was a freshman at the time, which was cool. Was and, he a quarterback? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Hayden Spire is his yeah. son. Yeah. Um, He's his offensive coordinator now up in Kentucky. Um, I was going to say he left because he was at Camden for a little bit, and then he went up to Kentucky, yeah. He was okay. at Camden. We, we actually got a chance to play him when I was at Warner Robins. Um, okay. And uh, and and he was at Camden uh, around the COVID time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, yeah, I owe a lot to him. Uh, still keep in touch with him to this day. And just the way that he ran things, he did a great job with a program in Gwinnett County that hadn't been very good. Yeah. And he came in and really made it a, a, a household name in the state. And it's continued on and with Bill Stewart. Now, Bill Stewart, you know, uh, gone on to Georgia Tech. And, yep. and so it's, uh, you know, I'm a Gwinnett County guy. That's where I'm from. I went to yeah. Cuba. And so we won't um, hold that against you. Yeah. Yeah. As so, a party um, guy, I won't I won't hold it against you. Yeah. So it's uh, it, 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 it was cool working for him for sure. Tequila is such an interesting one. I tell folks um, where I swear if you if I had to guess which school has changed regions and classifications more than any other school in the state of Georgia, I would say it's tequila. Like no year doubt. to year, you have no idea. You could be all in. You could be the just know everything about the GHSA. And tequila, I would still not know right now off the top of my head which region and which classification they're in because they just they always bounce around with their numbers. Yeah, like so. I graduated in '98, and mm -hmm. uh, we were double A. And uh, just the next year, they jumped all the way to four A, um, and then they jumped all the way up to what was seven. And, mm -hmm. and now, you know, it, it's it really exploded when they built the Mall of Georgia and Mill Creek High School yeah. and all that stuff. Now, Mill Creek is, I, I would imagine, the biggest school in the state. Uh, yeah, with over four thousand kids, and so. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's changed. It was a it was a Dairy Queen one stop <laughs> community, and now it's just boom. It's it's huge. Absolutely, I mean Gwinnett County is just booming, and then we'll see what happens with Forsyth County as that continues to get bigger and bigger, and the competition all across the board. And then you have, like I tell yeah, folks, yeah. Class Seven A, Six A in the state of Georgia, you're not going to find anywhere better and more talent and just better coaching. 
in those two classifications, five A two, like those upper echelon, and then you just have class seven A with you have one region just all the powerhouses of south georgia all there just and then you just have greater atlanta it's just kind of interesting to see how it's evolved from you and i like growing up in gwinnett county and what it was and i got spoiled with frank core and company like going to games and be on the sideline when part of you just didn't lose and you just get used to not losing high school games (laughs) that you go to you're up 49 to nothing at the half and Right. Uh, things change like Parview obviously um, they have a great kid and Mike Matthews five-star wide out he's a good player and uh-huh. still a lot of talent there Joey Sturdivant who was on a couple of months ago he was part of those teams um, and Joey's right. a good dude and uh, to see talking ball with him and how much it's changed over 20 years in Gwinnett County you have another Gwinnett kind of kid right Sean Calhoun played quarterback right. at Burkmar and now he's yep. at Colquitt and it's just kind of fun to see how many Gwinnett guys like yourself and everyone else mm-hmm. um, where they've ended up and where where they've gone because there was just so much talent both um on the field has so many due to two turned into great coaches it's do you is it is it kind of cool to just be in that gwinnett county kind of uh circle of influence in the coaching ranks here jeremy yeah and 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 you mentioned sean calhoun he's another good friend of mine mm. he, he's we're around the same age i think he graduated 99 from Burmore mm. and um we've we've kept in touch you know he started off he was at collins hill and and all that. So great guy, but yeah, it's a, it was definitely a, a great place. I, I, and I don't, I might hurt some feelings with this, but it was a great place to grow up um, mm. for me. I, and, um, but I honestly don't ever want to go back. Like it's yeah. just, too, it's too big, you know, mm. I mean, this, this is home for me. This feels like home. Um, I never would have thought I'd lived in middle Georgia to be honest mm. with you, growing up, but um it, this is a this has got that home feeling. It's it's growing, but it's it's not on that level yet to that size. So it's uh, but yeah, I, I I love my roots where I'm from and and uh, all the success that guys that have come out of Gwinnett County have had. And it's uh, you know, it's cool to watch those guys have a lot of success for sure. I'm right there with you. I'm here in Knoxville. I went up here for grad school and obviously a big Tennessee guy, but I. Uh, once I go back home sometimes for different family things, holidays, that kind of thing with my wife. And it's, I, I'll never do it again. I've told family, friends, I, I could never do the traffic. Like once you leave Atlanta traffic and the daily grind of that, it's just, you can't, you can't just talk yourself into it. It's just a totally right. different world. Once you leave it, you don't want to go. And um, Knoxville and is definitely like you have the city, but it's, traffic's not really a big issue when you're in a college town and kind of like where you're at where you're like "Ah, i'm good uh i'm i'm good with this simpler uh way of life and uh kind of just being on the outskirts a little bit no doubt it's funny when people here talk about the traffic being bad you have no idea yeah that drives you nuts right like you're just like you don't know what traffic is like that's you had a minor inconvenience when i lived in cairo traffic Mm. jam was uh getting right behind like a a a tractor (laughs) you know that was the only thing that would slow you down. Like there's literally yeah. nobody on the roads. So it's cool. Yeah. It, the, the state's so different, like you said, from south to north and middle. It's it, it's a cool place to be. Absolutely. Um, where do you think you're deepest right now in your roster? Where do you feel the strongest positionally going into this fall? Uh, I mean, we, we've got a pretty strong receiving core. Um, mm. You know, we've got two guys with power five offers and uh, one guy with several group of five offers. Um, and so being able to have three of those guys, you know, we're we're an 11 personnel team. So we mm-hmm. operate mainly at 11 personnel with a tight end. So all we need is three wide outs and we're mm-hmm. rolling out three of them that I feel like are, are really good. 
um, and, and been doing a good job through the recruiting process. You know, you got to keep kids grounded. There's a lot going on um, in addition to just getting recruited, you know, back when you and I were in school, it's different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've got social media and all this attention. And and so that I think our kids have done a really good job of managing that and then making sure that they're here uh, for team activities and doing things and trying to get Hoko to, uh, you know, which our goal is to win a state championship. There you go. I, I like it. Um, the biggest loss from last year's team to replace is going to be who for you? Oh, to be honest with you, our, we had a kid last year that was a D lineman his entire career. Again, mm-hmm. this was my first year last year as head coach, and we had a need at, at right tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have a right tackle, and so we, we, we really needed to get a guy in that, that, could, that could play. And so we pulled a kid over named Kylan House. Now, his brother, Khalil, is highly recruited right now. Several Power Five offers at guard for us. So they played side by side. Um, and uh, the fact that that kid was able to, you know, because if you're telling a D lineman, hey, I need you to go play O-line, that's tough. Mm. That's tough. Like they, uh, any of them big guys, if you give them a choice, they want to play D-line, rush the passer, do all that good stuff. Mm. So he did it seamlessly. And was really good at it. And his attitude when we asked him to do that, it was whatever it is to help the team. So as soon as that happened, and then he started having success, and he's going to be a preferred walk on at Georgia Southern. Um, he's not as big as his younger brother, but super talented kid. So I would have to say Kylan House is going to be the one that we've got to replace right now, right tackle. Who's the, do you have a, also, is it a Southpaw under center this year or no? No, no, my he's he's a righty. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I've coached one southpaw in my career, mm-hmm. and I, and and that was when I coached at Burtmore. Okay. So I, so, I, you know, no no one, all my kids think this is a pretty cool fact, but I coached uh, Quavius Marshall of of the Migos, Quavo. He was yeah. Like, yeah. So I call him Quavius. I we didn't call him Quavo back then. I know that's his name now, but. Uh-huh. So he was my quarterback at Burtmore. And, and he's your only Southpaw quarterback you've ever coached. I've ever coached. Everything's backwards when you coach a left-handed guy. Yeah. Like Does it make you, it harder? As a coach, yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're demonstrating different things, footwork and things like that, it's reversed. So, um, yeah, that 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 year was – and that was early in my career too. So it really it really challenged me there as a, as a coach. That's awesome. I never knew that. That's that's amazing. I did. That's uh, cool, who knew. The cool thing about it, honestly, Chase, is that um, throughout my uh, you know time here, my mm-hmm. quarterback AJ Hill, who's you know a, a, a junior now, he's six five, you know, two hundred fifteen pound, fifteen year old, mm-hmm. uh, that's super talented, and he plays on the seven on seven circuit and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, he plays for the Huncho Elite. Is <laughs> which is my former quarterback's team. Mm-hmm. So we've reconnected, you know, we didn't have cell phone. We didn't do cell phones back then when, when Quavius played. And so um, we've been able to reconnect and FaceTime and do all that. So it's been pretty cool. Are we going to get a Hoko uh, song from Quavo at some point? I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on getting him to come to a game. Now he's told yeah. me he's going to. So uh, as soon as he does that, I think that's going to be huge. I know our kids will love it. 
there you go that's cool uh small world man you never know these kids like who they're gonna end up being or who they're gonna end up like who you're coaching and that sort of thing but that's an awesome fun fact you're not gonna find a better one in uh state of georgia than your only left-handed quarterback was actually (laughs) at your point um what's the hardest position to get kids to buy into like when they're coming up and you're trying to feel things out 14 15 like you mentioned like uh if you give a kid an option he's gonna want to play d tackle or defensive line edge over offensive line is that the hardest one to get them to sell offensive line or is it another position to get them to buy in on? Absolutely. Offensive line. Hmm. For sure. Why um, is that? It's a thankless job. You know, hmm. you, you think of it like that. Now I, I've got a phenomenal coach um, at, at, for our offensive lineman that does a great job of building relationships and, um, you know, getting that, getting those guys coached up, giving them a family type feel to it. They mm-hmm. do a lot of stuff together as a group. Um, and so, you know, I think that you got to have the right guy um, coaching that position for sure. Um, got to be somebody detailed and makes it fun. And um, I think what we do offensively, schematically, it, it's, it's a little bit more fun for our guys. They like it. Um, they like the pace that we play at much like, what they do at Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it's, uh, I would definitely say the offensive line is, is for sure the, the toughest position. And it might be the hardest too. I mean, pass protection hmm. is very hard at all levels from the NFL down. That's, it's not easy. Um, you know, and you're having to block guys that are super, super athletic and, um, trying to rush the passer. So it's, um, offensive line for sure. But it's also, I mean, you get, if you're a tackle and you have the, you project into developing in a tackle body, like those guys get paid. Those guys are high value dudes nowadays. Um, yeah. Um, well, there you go, coach. Um, last thing here as we wrap up, when you look at this upcoming season, is there a slate of games that you're most excited about um, to learn about what your team is with the schedule? Does it feel, you feel pretty good about it? Is it getting Lee back again? See how that goes this go around. What have you already circled going into this fall? Um, well, there's a lot of uh, question marks right now because we've got, you know, Northside and Warner Robbins both have a new head coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do from a schematic standpoint and how their kids take to that. Um, obviously, in region, you know, we've got a tough region, Northside being one of those games. But the two that you got to win if you want to try to compete for a region championship is you got to beat Lee and you got to beat Thomas County Central. Yeah. And, and both of those teams we get at home this year. It's um, big. Huge. Um, last year, going to Lee, that might be one of the hardest places to play. Mm-hmm. Honestly, you don't get any calls there. <laughs> um, and uh, and then obviously the with, with what Justin's doing at TCC, it, it, it he's got them back on track to the success that they're used to having there. So um, those two games for sure. I know our kids. It, it won't take much to get them jacked up for those two. There you go. Coach, how do the good folks out there in Hoco and middle Georgia, South Georgia, North Georgia, how do they support your program this summer going into uh, this fall? Uh, how do they support us? Yeah, how do they support you? Where do they follow? What can they go see? Uh, what uh, What would you suggest they do? Well, I mean, we, we uh, you know, we'll, we're going to go to Auburn tomorrow for a 7-on-7. Okay. Seven seven. Uh, the following Thursday, um, we'll be at Georgia. Uh, for mm. the seven on seven, that, and then we'll wrap up the competition type because that's kind of its own sport. To be quite mm. honest, it's 
it's a little different. Um, how hands so they, are, how hands on are you for those events? I still call the offense. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I've got an offensive coordinator, but I, you know, I still, I still call the offense. Mm-hmm. That's just not something that I'm ready to give up um, right now. I, I, I don't know that I ever will, to be mm-hmm. honest, it's just that much fun. Um, keeps me, you know, keeps me involved. I'm not really the CEO type um, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of sit back, but um, yeah, I mean, we, I feel like we've got a really good website. If anybody wants to go to it, it's hocofootball.com. Uh, we got a pretty big presence on Twitter and, um, and on, we got a Facebook page. I think it's a private group, but really on Twitter, Instagram is run by kids at our school and the, uh, um, uh, the video department, they kind of handle that. Uh, but you know, we, we try to, we try to give our kids, you know, we try to put our brand out there and, mm-hmm. um, you know, this place was, um, when Jake Fromm played here, it was booming and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I got the job, I knew that we had talent. We needed to get these kids to believe in themselves and playing with some mojo and some swagger. And I think we're starting to kind of get that coming off a 10-win season. And so, um, you know, that's huge. And so we want to try to make a name for ourselves here on Highway 96, and we're just going to keep trying to get 1% better every day. I know it sounds cliche, but it's uh, – you know, we're, we're studying a book right now. I got it right here. We're doing a book study with our team. Uh, keep chopping wood. It's a great there you book. Go. Not real big, as you can see. So it's, you know, it's their summer reading and mm. we do it with our leadership council. And so we're talking about that every day and and what it means to keep chopping wood, um, not for today, but for tomorrow to build the fire. So we're uh, we're gonna keep trying to get better and and see where it goes this year. There you go, Coach. Thank you so much for the time today. This was a blast. I appreciate uh, you making the time I appreciate and you having me on. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll check back in uh, again when the regular season gets going and uh, really get into ball, which is only what, two months away. It's kind of wild that we're, we're nearing, we're nearing that time. Jeremy, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.